what's going on? It's got another episode of White Heat coming at you in just a moment. But first, we got to talk to you about Mohawk Honda once again. We've been talking to you for a long time now about Mohawk Honda and all the great deals they usually have with their certified pre-owned vehicles. This time around, though, for the fall, we've been talking about a special offer they've had going on to help you deal with the current supply and demand challenges that are going on within the auto industry. This is giving you a perfect opportunity to get the best value out of trading in your vehicle. It's called the Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer being done over at Mohawk Honda in Scotia Glenville, where they will put cash in your hand for your vehicle the same day that you come in and bring that vehicle on the lot. You don't have to go through any paperwork waiting to be cleared. You don't have to wait for like a 72-hour clearance. No, they'll put cash in hand same day. So let's wait for a check to clear the bank or any of that jazz or any of that bullshit. And that's even if you don't turn around and buy a vehicle off of them that day. I mean, what more could you ask for, especially if you're like a recent college grad or if you're just somebody looking, you know, strapped for some extra cash. This is perfect for you. Just go to the lot, say, hey, I'd like to trade this in. And they'll give you the best offer that you can possibly get right now. Don't forget, though, that Mohawk Honda has consistently kept their lot fully stocked with hundreds of pre-owned vehicles. So in case you do decide you want to turn around and make it a trade-in one-for-one, you know what you can do? You can go online and take a look at their hundreds of certified pre-owned vehicles, their large inventory, which makes shopping fun because then you'll know in advance before you even walk on the lot what you want to do. That way you're not spending hours on hours looking up and down the lot, walking around, looking at cars, test driving. No, you can walk a lot and say, hey, I want to give you this for that. And then they can just crunch the numbers. You're in, you're out. Hello, goodbye. Nice and easy. Make sure you stop in and say hi to Greg Johnson, their assistant general manager. We can also talk to Jake Hot Sauce Doyle, Luis, the VIP man, Morales, or any one of the many helpful sales consultants you see at Mohawk Honda, Scotia Glenville, with their vast selection of Honda certified pre-owned vehicles, and now the time to take advantage of their Kelly Blue Book instant cash offer. Mohawk Honda, Scotia Glenville, where they always go out of their way to please you, and welcome, welcome in to episode 27 of White Heat, right here. Presented by Godzilla Media, sponsored by our friends in Mohawk Honda. We'll also talk about our friends from Johnstone Supply in Troy in a little bit. Whew, a belated happy Thanksgiving. I think we wished happy Thanksgiving at the end of last episode in advance. Yep. We also did Thanksgiving for shits and giggles because I fucking feel like it. <laughs> um, mine was interesting because uh, there was a little back and forth on what the plans were going to be. And finally, we settled on... Um, is actually kind of what you had mentioned before the show. Similar situation to me. Um, my wife was back and forth about going to visit family in Virginia for a few days. Finally got the clearance that she was going to go. And uh, so she spent time with her family for a few days. And I went and had a Thanksgiving with uh, family on my side. How was yours? Low was remember, from what I understand. Yeah, it was pretty low key. Like, luckily, you know, we just, like, I, you know, didn't have the, didn't have the wherewithal or the time or just the energy to like actually like do a full thing. So I just pre-ordered from a local place and got some stuff, you know, pre-done so we could just heat it up the day of, which actually helped because like I've been my my sleep schedule has been really screwed up lately, and uh, I ended up like not being able to fall asleep the night before. Right. And I didn't pass out until like six a.m. And so I was passed out and she just let me sleep and I woke up and it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, what the fuck? I just lost a whole day. 
You know, I, I gotta say, if if you can find a place, because it's a, that's the same thing my my family has done the last few years. They've they found a place they trust and like the food from, so they just order the you know the advanced meal from them. Just bring it home, heat it up a little bit, and voila, dinner's on the table. So it, it's it's really the best option these days, because like. With hectic schedules, especially if you're in a family where everybody works, if you're in a household like that, when nobody really has the free time to really afford spending into the prep, especially like the cleaning out the turkey and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. you can find a place that does everything in advance. And all you got to do is just turn on the oven for like a half hour to an hour, pop everything in, and then put it out out and let everybody just dig in. Shit, why not, right? Right. Because I mean, like the place we went, like, Usually, if you, like, go out there for, like, a dinner for two, like, with, like, drinks and gratuity would probably run you about around 50 bucks. And the catering thing I got from them, which feeds a family of four, which I've still got some leftovers, was 75. So, worked out fine. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. <laughs> what is... I, don't trust me. We're not going to trust you with Thanksgiving episode. Don't worry. But I just, <laughs> just got to... I just got to get this out of the way. Your favorite part of a Thanksgiving meal? Depends on where I'm at. Um, usually the stuffing, if it's done right. Mm. Unfortunately, the wife's family doesn't know how to do stuffing right. Because oh, they're, <laughs> they're French Canadian. Oh, uh, well. Uh, so they make that sausage stuffing that's not really stuffing. Right. It's made with like saltine crackers and mashed potatoes. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Ooh. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> I'll admit, I'm a sucker for stuffing. I am... I'm a tie. Mine's between sweet potatoes. Like, I love love sweet potatoes. So, like, sweet potatoes. But, um... My... My my dad's wife, she makes uh, a killer chocolate pecan pie. But the chocolate comes in the form of Rolos. Ah. So it's chocolate and caramel. Oh my God. Diabetes. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> I'm never going to be a skinny man. Um, <laughs> if you know the, the TikTok, that's from a TikTok guy. If yeah. you know it, you'll, you'll appreciate it. You, you, you probably have heard it. It's okay. Yeah. Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah. Anyways. There's one, there, there's one thing that I do miss about not going to see the wife's family. Was usually they like host it for like that extended part of the family. So there's usually like 20 people there. Of course, COVID, you know, can't do it. But so what happens is they all, there's always extra food made. Ooh. So in order to quell that, they came up with this idea years ago that actually works where they, uh, where when they do the Thanksgiving shopping, they buy a whole bunch of frozen pie crusts and the toppers. And what happens is afterwards, so when everyone's out or whatever, they take everything and put it out on the table and you go and you make like a, like a poor man shepherd's pie. You take, you make a leftovers pie with the layers of everything and you put the top on, you bring it home, you freeze it. And then one day you take it out, you put it in the oven for an hour and it's, it's day after Thanksgiving pie. It's a, you, huh. you make it how you want, and it's amazing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I've never heard of that idea before, but I oh, like yeah. it. It's ingenious. Hmm. Hmm. You may just give me an idea. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. So that's that's just yeah. 
Uh, so, a bunch of stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, that might actually be an understatement, honestly. <laughs> um, I'm trying to decipher what to start with, because there, there are a few different angles to go with. Um, you know what? Let, let's get the typical underlying stuff out of the way first. Okay. Let's just... Let's just start with that real quick. Um, first off, uh, New Japan real quick. They've announced some new matches for their Nemesis card with New Japan Strong. Um, that event is next weekend, I believe. Next weekend, next Thursday, excuse me, next Thursday, December 9th. Um, the two matches that they have since added uh, since we last had our show, they've added Alex Coughlin against J.R. Kratos and Gabriel Kidd against Eddie Kingston. Um which is intriguing because I feel like Kings, like, I mean, Kingston isn't built physically like a Chris Dickinson, but I feel like Kingston's a it's definite. not an awful option to to fill in, I yeah. guess. Um, it kind of fills that Dickinson type void on the card, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Definitely. Um, and uh, by the way, on the Dickinson front, since we're on talk, we are talking to Japan. Um, Two part number one in New Japan, and you show me this. Uh, they are shirt. selling, they are selling <laughs> a shirt on their merch site um, to help raise funds to go towards the medical bills from his surgery. So good on New Japan, pretty cool. Yeah. Second off, uh, I have seen Dickinson status updates. I don't know if you've been seeing them, um, yep. but he's already back in the gym and uh, busted ass and. Yep. Being Dickinson, essentially. So, Chris being Chris. <laughs> um, so, so good on him. And, uh, you know, hopefully that means we can see him sooner rather than later. Uh, Super Junior 28 uh, show. Show is 6 and 1, lean the table in this damn thing. He's at 12 points, and he's three points clear of the next closest person, which is El Desperado. And then you've got Taguchi. Uh, Kanemaru and Taiji Ishimori all at eight points. Uh, Hiromu Takahashi at seven. And then everybody else at six or four. And the matches coming up for uh, night seven of the tournament. Actually, this should be night eight. Uh, oh, wait, hold on. Why is there... I don't know why they're saying night seven. I think they meant to put night eight, but whatever. Anyways, mm-hmm. um... The upcoming matches, uh, the next night they have is is December 3rd, so that's going to be Friday night. Friday. Uh, we're looking at Hiromu Takahashi against Taguchi. We're looking at Kanemaru against Master Wado. We have Dookie versus Robbie Eagles. Yo against El Desperado. Uh, what else we got here? Bushi against Taiji Ishimori. And show against El Phantasmo. Huh. Most of the matches we're going to have there uh, on the next night of the Super Juniors. As far as the World Tag League is concerned, uh, their next night of action is going to be uh, the 30th, actually, tomorrow night. Um, looking at the World Tag League right now, Naito and Sonata are unbeaten 5-0 and in the table right now. So they're at 10 points. And their their matchup is going to be Great Okan and Hanare um, in night six of the tournament. <clears throat> Meanwhile, behind them, Tanahashi and Yano 
are at eight points. So are Tai Chi and Zach Sabre Jr. And then four teams at six points each. That's Goto and uh, Yoshi. Let's see here. Great Okan and Hanare, Tama and Tonga, and Bad Luck Fale and Chase Owens. Uh, the other matchups aside from um, who's one I said? Oh, aside from Naito and Sonata against Okan and Hanare, we also have uh, Tanahashi and Yano against Tai Chi and Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, Makabe and Hama against Goto and Yoshi. Uh, Tenzan and Kojima against Tama and Tonga Loa, uh, G.O.D. Nagata and Tiger Mask against Evil and Yujiro. And let's see, 11.30. Uh, Suzuki and Taka Michinoku against Bad Luck Fale and Chase Owens. Good. So that's going to be night six of the tournament. And again, that's tomorrow night as we are recording here on Monday the 29th. So, um, obviously, looks like they're, they're leaning heavy on Naito and Sonata potentially winning that. And Super Juniors looks like they're leaning towards show. So, uh, you know, is what it is. Any, any of that shock you at all as far as the way they're leaning with either of those tournaments right now? A little. I mean, who, who are the current tag champs right now? Great question. That is a terrific question. Um, yeah, think about that for a second. Let me. I'll look that up and go ahead with your thought process. How about that? Just because I know we're rounding out the end of the year and we're we're doing the build towards Wrestle Kingdom, and the way they've been booking the God, like. They usually book them so that they're in a prominent spot come Wrestle Kingdom and they're undefeated at Wrestle Kingdom. And you would think they would keep going that same route. So I'm surprised they're that low in the rankings right now. Oh, your current champions are Tai Chi and Zack Sabre Jr. Whoa. They've been champions since uh, end of July. I wonder I couldn't remember because it's Kind of forgettable. <laughs> um, yeah. So just to run through the champions real quick, by the way, uh, your Never Point Six Man Champs are um, what's called House of Torture, yeah. which is Evil Show and Yujiro Takahashi. The Junior Heavyweight Tag Champs are Robbie Eagles and Tiger Mask. The Junior Heavyweight Singles Champion is El Desperado. Oh, we just mentioned the tag champs. Um, the strong openweight champion, so the openweight champion from the New Japan Strong brand based on the West Coast of the U.S., uh, that's Tom Lawler. He's held that since late April, just as a as a notable point. Um, what else we got here? Uh, the Never Openweight Championship, obviously, is Tomohiro Rishi. We went over that last show when he beat yeah. Jay White in San Jose a few weeks ago. Uh, the U.S. champ is Kenta. Uh, he won that title uh, earlier this month as well when he beat uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi. And then Shingo Takagi has been the World Heavyweight champ since June. Uh, so just about six months coming up for Shingo as he'll defend against Okada at Wrestle Kingdom at, uh, in January. So, Wondering uh, where Jay White's going to land come January. 
Are you talking in general or as far as where he lands in the on the card for Wrestle Kingdom? In general. Because I know Jay White's been called out. That was another thing that I didn't mention from New Japan is that over the weekend, he did get called out by somebody for... I want to say it. I want to say it was for Wrestle Kingdom at night two. I could be wrong. Please hold. Let me try to find this. Hang on. Now that's a build. Yeah, yeah. El El Fantasmo. Bullet Club versus um, Bullet Club. Yeah. Yeah. So El Fantasmo basically challenged um, Jay White for Wrestle Kingdom. Didn't specify what night, but. Um, the challenge is out there. So like, that so, makes me wonder even more because you're doing Bullet Club versus Bullet Club. And usually, with the history of the Bullet Club, usually whoever's leading them on his way out usually like anoints the new head. And I'm not saying it's going to be El Fantasma, but he could very well lose and then get jumped afterwards, just like. I mean, Fucking David did with Styles and Styles did with fucking Kenny Olivier and all that bullshit. You know, here's here you mentioned Bullet Club. So let's just try to take a look at this because this the this current iteration of Bullet Club obviously is a mess. Um, yep. <laughs> let's just take a, a peek at it, shall we? Cause right now there is Obviously, there's. Oh shit! Um, please hold. Hang on. Okay, so current members of Bullet Club. Um, Bad Luck Fale, technically speaking. He's the OG. Bad Luck Fale, Chase Owens, Chris Bay, Dick Togo, El Fantasmo, Evil, Gato, um. I know, no, I know, I know how I want to pronounce him, but you know, I've yeah, Hikaleo, thank you. Uh, Jado, Jay White, Kenta, Show, Taiji Shimori, Tamatanga, Tonga Loa, and Yujiro Takahashi. Those are your current members. Um, so hypothetically. Take a look at that list. As far as who would properly fit that role, nobody except for fucking Tamatanga. <laughs> I, I was. That's funny because I was gonna say, as much as I love God, I feel like it's time. To pull the trigger on Tamatanga trying to be a singles guy, man. Mm-hmm. I just, I, because he's he's got. This, this isn't a slam on Tonga Loa, not at all. But Tamatanga just has the personality for it, man. He just, he just has that personality of to Wait. to to quote the way I uh, described Ric Flair last week. He has that dilly gaff mindset. He just mm-hmm. doesn't give a fuck, yeah. and that's the. That's the mindset Bull Club is supposed to have. Exactly. Like, Jay White kind of has it, 
but not to the extreme that Tama has, because Tama's been through the ringer from, you know, way back in the deeper origins of Bullet Club. Yeah. So, like, I feel like Tama would be the best fit, so I agree with you there. Right. Um, and then just freaking put Tangaloa with freaking Hikaleo and have them run as a tag. Yeah, that 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 would that make sense if you want to like reinvent the wheel a little bit with God. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like uh, okay, just to stick with that ideal with um, you know the. Samoan Dynasty and all that. Yeah. Some people might not remember this, but I do. There was a short period of time where the head shrinkers weren't the re- the real head shrinkers. Yep. If you remember, there's a short period of time. Batu and Sioni. Right. Because uh, Samu just became, um, he went full face and had like the. Like the '90s, like rainbow jacket shit going on. I can't remember the what he called himself at the point. No, no, that that was spot two. That was oh, no, that was spot two. Shrink. Okay, that's right, that's right. Sorry, I'm getting Samu, shit like, crossed up. Samu either uh, Samu either had like a work visa issue or he got like really sick. And that's, that's right. That's why they brought in Barbarian to replace him. Right. So, and, so, and that was like a, towards the tail end of the head shrinkers existing. So. Mm-hmm. And something that not a whole lot of people remember, but it did happen. So it can it can work, right? Like, um, especially with how young he is, yeah. I feel like him coming right in and working with Tongaloa in a tag setting could help him grow more and mm-hmm. grow. Because I feel like I feel like the one holdback with him, just in the very little bit I've seen of him. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he's fully grown into his body yet as a wrestler. He hasn't. So I feel like you put him in a tag setting with a veteran like Tonga, uh, like Tonga Loa, mm-hmm. that was like the perfect formula for him. Plus Tonga Loa, he, he has no fucking issue going back and forth between Japan and the West Coast of the U.S. He's right. he, he was doing it before. He's not going to have a problem doing it again if they want to book him for strong uh, potentially. Right. Um, so you could always do that. Right. Um but yeah, like Tama Tonga is the perfect, the right fit. Who do I think they go with? You and I have both said this. I think the Kenta train has already left the station, so I don't oh, yeah. see that being an option. The only option I could see them potentially going with, just because they've kind of stopped and started with him already before, is evil. But nah. I, here's the problem: it's not the same feel to it. Yeah, here's the problem, and it's the problem that I've said has has plagued Bullet Club for the past few years. And it's Bullet Club was supposed to be a stable of gaijins. It was never supposed to have any Japanese people in it. And that's where the train started falling off the track in the past few years of putting in Kenta and putting in Evil and putting in Sho. Like, that's not what it was. So I'm thinking if if they do go this route where... Jay White decides it's time for greener pastures and gets an offer on the table from New York, which would be very nice. Um, and they need someone to replace him. Either go with Tamatanga or you bring in a surprise and you do something like Buddy Matthews. Here's, 
I like the idea. But here's the question I have coming out of what you just said. Uh-huh. And it, it works into a conversation we're going to have in a little bit. Uh-huh. But the question is to be asked. Yeah. Depending on who's making decisions right now. Yeah. Is Jay White a, a New York guy? I think so. I honestly think – I think he was ready when – what was it, last year right, right around Wrestle Kingdom – like his contract was being renegotiated and they yanked everything about him from the new, all the new Japan sites and social media and everything like just in case. Yeah. That was about like, a year ago. Yeah. I could see like Jay White's one of those guys where he's got the experience now where they wouldn't put him in NXT. They'd bring him up to the main roster like they did with AJ. And like, I could see Jay White being a surprise rumble entrant. Hmm. Which now you've got now you got the J Way thing working in. There's two facets to that. We'll get to, we'll get to that more in a little bit. Um, real quick, just because they didn't really do a whole lot of anything over the last week, but fuck it, I'll I'll put it up. Um, so Impact didn't run an episode of Impact uh, this past week because of Thanksgiving Day. They did a whole pre-tape thing of Wrestle House Two, which uh, I, I still don't fucking understand what this concept is. Like, what? what it's wait, terrible. Is what it is. Like, what, like, is it actually a competition, or is it just them? No, creating a, an act, an active wrestlers version of Legends House. It's an active wrestlers version of the real world. Like, it's not like at least Legends House. Like, they had to do like funny shit. With like the public, but like this is just literally like let's make up conflicts to have them go have a match in the backyard. It's ridiculous. <sighs> All right, that that sums up everything you need to know there. Anyways, um, <laughs> I'm going to politely ask you a question, and because I love this gentleman, one of this gentleman's champions. In his company, uh, uh, this is not meant to be a slanderous question. Mm-hmm. Um, to go to the <laughs> indie scene for a moment, I want to go to the indie scene for a moment because Halloween night, if you recall, ladies and gentlemen, so this is four weeks ago. Halloween night, Mr. Matt Tremont, um, potentially could have had, didn't, but potentially could have had a near-death incident. Yeah. Um, he was in a essentially a Japanese exploding barbed wire deathmatch kind of gimmick with Onita. Yeah. And Tremont got fucked up enough where he had to go to an actual burn center, a burn unit, and be treated properly. And he was there for what, almost a week, I think it was, we timed about out? Ten, Ish. Yeah, about 10 days. 10 days, yeah. Um, bad enough where he wasn't able to attend a wedding that you attended. Um, and, you know, you would normally think that and a guy who runs a wrestling company um, is the booker man, he's the pencil, whatever the fuck you want to call him. Mm-hmm. He would Take a step back for a little bit. Just kind of like, you know what? I, I'm good. 
Let me let me take some time to, to chill. Let me let me gather my thoughts and my composure and just kind of you know <laughs> rest in my laurels for a little bit. Because Tremont did get some, you know, this wasn't one of those things where he did it for shits and giggles. You know, he there was some momentum to his um, his uh, his company from that because yeah. like it got cover it got national coverage on. Uh, News wrestling news websites it even got covered by Jim Cornette yeah. on his podcast. Like it caught people's attention. This crazy motherfucker. <laughs> I'm starting to finally. I'm I'm starting to finally understand the level of crazy match. I thought I knew it. The oh. one night you, I thought I understood it at least a little bit. The one night you he was booked to fill in to take we've talked about that night yeah. once or twice on this show the night he was booked to fill in and take on just incredible in his retirement match which was a whole fucking scene onto itself <laughs> no 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 that was a this mild one, fight this motherfucker put himself into a no rope barbed wire was it a lumberjack match yes okay so a no rope barbed wire lumberjack match for his company's title against uh, a guy who's also kind of built momentum himself over the last number of months with his AEW appearances and so on and so forth, Ricky Shane Page. Mm-hmm. Um, goes over on RSP, becomes a new champion. And then, for anyone who knows and loves Matt, there's that famous photo of him like a year ago when he was sitting in the folding chair with this comp with uh, the Danny Havoc banner in the background. And he basically redid that image after the match over the weekend. Yeah. So I need to ask how psycho is psycho. (laughs) I love Matt to death. And in all honesty, I've been thinking about this and I was like, why would you do this? This is my only train of thought on the matter is uh, Ricky Shane page has uh, other stuff going on. He's one of the co-owners of beyond wrestling. So he may he may very well need to be doing something with that or, you know, something where he won't be available to Tremont for the foreseeable future. And Tremont knew that. And because he is someone who likes to tell stories, um, he didn't want to just throw in anybody to have a title match on a whim with RSP. And because him and him and him and him and RSP have they have a history they, they they've worked each other many times and the thing is they also it was billed as the last time ever between the two of them. So there was a reason for the match, and I think Tremont's just going to be transitional right now until he's ready for one of his, for lack of a better term, homegrown people to take that title, whether it be someone like. Connor Claxton or someone like Schlack or someone like that. Man's fucking crazy. He is. But you got to Here's <laughs> like it's just you know I'll, I'll, I'll try to I'm trying to think of a proper comparison, and this is the only one I could come up with. And I'm sure Matt, if he ever heard this, and it'll, it'll be actually nice if he did hear this, 
he would probably shoot down this comparison vehemently and say, don't ever fucking say that again. Matt has the kind of endearing quality to him. As kind of like a Terry Funk. It's very odd. Yeah. Now, again, he'd probably hear this and tell me to shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> but, like I said, because you, you don't look at, like, if you go to old, old school Terry Funk, pre-psycho Terry Funk, yeah. you could talk about, you know, use the modern phrases like work rate and being a good technical wrestler and shit like that. Yeah. But, like, really, what people know Terry Funk for Nothing's technically masterful, but it's storytelling and it's willing to do whatever to give. He's a giver. Uh-huh. And that's you know, to a modern day 2021 wrestling extent, that's what Matt Tremont is. And that's really the only proper comparison I can think of is is Terry Funk. Yeah. No, I, I mean you're pretty yeah. spot on. Like, cause and I've said it before, is people think that Tremont just does deathmatch shit. I've watched Matt work a straight-laced wrestling match, and he can go. Like he just chooses this milieu. It doesn't mean he can't actually wrestle. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll like this is, this is this is what I'll try to close it out with. He, he had already endeared himself to me with the whole Just Incredible, the whole night with Justin. Mm-hmm. But just the shit that I like read and watch, and this is one of the rare times where Twitter is a beautiful thing because I feel like the passion he has is reflected also within the people who really try to push his company and their talent and what they're doing. So like, I don't know. He he somehow become more endearing to me, even though I haven't seen the guy since that night. And it's really, like, I don't even know how to say it. Like, right. I don't know. It, he's I've seen somehow become more endearing to me, even though I haven't seen him since that night when he wrestled Justin. And I just I don't know. It's yeah. I think what he's doing is pretty cool. And uh, good on you, Matt. And you know, we'll wait and see what happens at this point. Yeah. All right, so since a great bulk of the stuff I really want to talk about is WWE-related, we might as well get this out of the way. Um, Because there's there's a couple of things I specifically want to bring up about AEW Mm -hmm. that I... I just need to get opinions out of you about. Number one... um. Can we just discuss how random as fuck it is that Dante Martin is suddenly joining Team Taz? Like, where at all in any logic whatsoever? Like, granted, everything they were doing with Leo Rush and Dante Martin was pretty fucking random. Mm -hmm. But at least logistically, what they were, the story they were telling kind of made sense in that exactly Leo was trying to be, it was very, it was very Ali and Mansoor like. In a way. Yeah. And that Leah was trying to become the mentor. Dante was resisting it. Then Dante finally embraced it and then teamed with him. 
But now all of a sudden, Dante becomes a part of Team Taz. Where does A plus B equal C here? Two plus four equals chair. Like seriously, <laughs> like fucking if like and what what's worse is you're talking it's like oh well there's more opportunity or whatever like blah, blah blah you're talking about a kid joining a stable that has done nothing of merit this entire year except feud within themselves for a title that doesn't fucking hold any sanction and do the job to XWWE guy fucking of the week. That's it. Or have matches on fucking YouTube. Yeah. Like, like there's no fucking the, point the stuff like, Dante has done most notably was the stuff with Matt Seidel and his brother. Yeah. And then wasn't there one match that he I can't remember if he faced Cody or tagged with Cody. It was one or the other. Tagged with Cody. Yeah. And like that and that's really a, about it. Yeah. So I, I just I. I mean, it's, it's a kid. It's 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 AEW. It's another kid that looks like he's twelve and does flips. Like, well, it's not even that. It's like, like just let's just take it from a team task perspective. You had Brian yep. Cage with Hobbs and Little Taz, um, Min, Mini Pete, um, and Starks. Yes, thank you. Um, now I would say you have no offense to Brian, you have the proper person as the front man now in Starks, as far as a mouthpiece is concerned. Like, Brian was eh, like, I love, I love Brian uh, as far as what he does in the ring, but on the stick, he's kind of eh, yep. As far as on the stick, Ricky's your guy, yeah. Um, but now that Brian's on the picture, they've kind of weighed to lace that whole story with him. Like, you fill the void of a 285-pound guy that can wrestle like a 150-pounder with Dante Martin? Like, yep. that that's your answer? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any fucking sense. That, they, they, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't fucking know. Um... I got nothing for that. Uh, the, another thing I want to bring up. Um, as much as I love the two, the stuff being said by these two guys, is it me or did that punk MJF segment take fucking forever? It was 25 fucking minutes. Forever. We're not sports entertainment. But our opening shit on our show is a 20-minute promo. Forever! Like, the fuck? Like, was it really... Like, was it necessary? And not only that, it was 25, with 20 of it basically being one guy talking. Yep. Like, Punk did maybe a third of the talking, if that. Maybe, more like a quarter, maybe? 20%? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it was really just, as much as I love MJF and him talking on the stick, it was too much. I felt like it was, they were, they were, they were, they were trying to put everything into one. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, they're, like, they're trying to rush the fucking thing. Yep. Which is dumb because you would assume 
you want Punk MJF to be, at least I would assume this is what they're going for. They want that to be revolution in February. No, it's or March, whatever the fuck they're booking it. No, they're going to book it for the January 8th show. <sighs> Which still gives you a month. But... It's free TV! Yeah. But it's free TV to get, to get ratings, because ratings, because ratings, because Tony Khan thinks he's fucking Eric Bischoff. Have they ever drawn more than... Oh, we'll get to that in a second, actually. Hang on. Well, Hank, the, the Bischoff comment was ironic. Have they ever drawn more than 1.2? Nope. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually funny you brought up Bischoff because... did you Did you hear Bischoff's recent comment, by the way? Was it the meme I sent you? No. He's, he's smart, he's just lucky. That's part of it. There was another part to it, though. Yeah. Did you? Was there also the part in there about how Bischoff said that... Um, what was it? He said some of the lines of... Um, essentially, if I brought back... Oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, brought back WCW. I almost wish I could reboot WCW just to show Tony Khan how it's done. I wouldn't have a comedy champion or make fans wait three years for a payoff to a story, which uh -huh. was him referring to Hangman Omega page. and Hangman. Yeah. Um, I could restart WCW tomorrow and get more viewers in AEW. In an opinion, it's a fact. Khan isn't a genius. He's lucky. So yeah. essentially what he's saying is Tony Khan woke up on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this long story short, that's what Bischoff is saying. Um, which brings that's actually a continuation of something that he was saying in October, back when Tony Khan shot his mouth off and said that he was a better fucking businessman than Ted Turner. Ted Turner was a biz a media conglomerate. That's just that's insulting. But basically, he's saying if he had Ted Turner's position, WCW would still be going, and they would have won the war. But wrestling was which, a hobby to Ted. It wasn't really a business. Exactly that and. Guess what? No, you wouldn't, because you've proven that you pulling out every fucking stop helped you beat their developmental brand. Like, you have come nowhere near sniffing the amount of fucking views that Raw gets or that SmackDown gets. Yeah, Ted, Ted, to go back to the Ted Turner thing, Ted treated WCW to him was a hobby. You know, actually, Ted was a Tony Khan light in the regards of he loved wrestling. Wrestling was a how should I put this? It was a mainstay on the Superstation for years and years, going back to Georgia Championship Wrestling and so on. Right. So it was almost like a hobby that he felt obligated to keep on TV. Right. It's the best way to put it. Yeah. And to the to even the point of being irresponsibly devoted to it. Right. And then businessmen came in from the merger and said, fuck this hobby. <laughs> um, you know, this isn't collecting baseball cards. This is a little bit more than that. And uh, basically cut off the hobby, cut off the funds for the hobby. Yeah. Um, 
the same kind of thing. Like, all right, here's okay. Let me let me give a let me give a basement dwellers example of this because I feel like the basement dwellers are the ones that need to be addressed with this. Okay, because <laughs> I know I know some of you some of you keyboard warriors in your mommy's basement are gonna understand this. I'm assuming some of you keyboard warriors are some kind of collector. Magic the Gathering cards, old video games, Final Pops, sports cards, Pokemon cards, whatever the fuck you collect. You collect something, typically. Typically. South Park box sets. I don't fucking know what you're collecting. But you're collecting like something. Because those are going to have a lot of worth. Um, it's not about the worth. It's about the collection. It's about the nostalgia. It's like having a vinyl collection. Are you being sarcastic or serious right now? I'm being serious. You should see my fucking VHS collection. Good for you. Anyways. Um, if you are single, which I'm assuming a lot of these keyboard warriors are, <laughs> in your mind, oh, I could spend my money however the hell I want. I've got this funding. I earned it. I'm going to fucking spend it. And you just keep building the collection, building the collection, building the collection. If at some point when you're ready to be in a vegetative state in a senior citizen's home, you get lucky and find a woman that actually wants to marry you, <laughs> then all of a sudden, you have to think about taking care of the household and not just yourself. So now your budget's going to be cut. That goes towards your hobby. It's the same fucking thing that happened with Ted when AOL Time Warner took over. That's what that shit was. Now, imagine Tony right now. <laughs> if Daddy decided, okay, son, enough's enough. We're going to put you on a, uh, what's the best way to put this? A limit, but that's not the word I'm really looking for. Um, what's the An thing? When, what's the thing that uh, when they, to limit the speed you go in a car? A governor. Governor, thank you. Thank you. I just felt like Bruce Pritchard for a second. I'm like, eh, the, the, what's the word? Um, yeah, it's going to put a governor on you and say, okay, you could only, you know, kind of like a height restriction on a roller coaster. You must be this high to ride Michael. Anyways, um, <laughs> if you didn't get that, you didn't watch enough Robin Williams stand up growing up. Anyways, um, yeah, it's, it's just. <sighs> At some point, some, somebody's got to make sense of, of, of shit. And Tony's going to learn the hard way, I feel like, that you can't just throw money against the wall and hope somebody's going to work in your, your product. Uh-huh. Um, With the addition of Tony Nese, did they officially had 120 roster members? Jesus. And he's coming right in and just like Jay Lethal, just going to get a shot at Sammy Guevara for the fuck of it? Yep. Is that basically what the TNT title is becoming now with Sammy Guevara's champion? It's the Forbidden Door title? Well, supposedly it's always been like this, but I do not recall it being like this with no champions. No. No. How should I put it? All right. So, at least when Cody and what's-his-face, Miro held it, it wasn't so much a Forbidden Door title as a until a viable challenger came after their title, mm -hmm. it was a let's help put shine on these guys that usually work dark or elevation. Mm -hmm. 
a glorified squash essentially is what it would be. Right. They're like um, basically, and here's here here's something that'll really piss off the IWC. It's basically the same as when Bret Hart was Intercontinental Champion. Yeah. It was there for him to squash mid carters every week until they found the next guy to anoint to to fucking get ready for the main event. Uh, pop quiz, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing you, because you're a fucking nerd like me, you'll probably know the answer to this. November of 91, mm-hmm. WWE had Survivor Series yeah. and Tuesday in Texas within a week of each other. Yeah. Hold on. Let me reverse this. Hold on. I got to think about this. Hang on. I got to think about this. All right. I have my thought process a little mixed up. Okay. So that's Survivor Series 91. Mm-hmm. He, I believe, was in a Survivor Series match, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, I believe, he was in, I believe he was in the Survivor Series match. But anyways, that's neither here yeah. nor there. Okay. So he's in the Survivor Series match. Less than a week later, he had his first pay-per-view title defense. As a singles champion when he was the Intercontinental Champion, who was that title defense against? Wasn't that when he dropped it at the Mountie? No. He no, dropped to the Mountie at a house, house, yeah, the yeah, at a house show within a week of Royal Rumble 92 because he, the story, well, the story they told was he spiked a badass yeah, fever and whatever. He had, he had a bad yeah. flu and then he dropped the belt there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Brett was in the opening match of Brett was in the opening match of Survivor Series '91. He was in the same, uh, he was in the same, uh, Roar, the same Rumble match, right? And Flair was the sole survivor because everyone got counted out because that somehow fucking worked. Um, yeah. Any hooser, who did he defend the title against less than a week later, Tuesday in Texas? It goes towards the idea of him facing someone that didn't really get shine. Really, at any point in his career. Oh, what the fuck was it? Uh, Is it it Steve Skinner? Yep. 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 And the crazy part, well, not crazy, because considering what he would end up doing later on in life. Um, it was the opening match of the pay-per-view broadcast. And for a 13-minute match, Steve and Brett put on... They put on a good show. I thought it was a really good opening match for that card. Yeah. But it's funny because, like, you mentioned him, like, defending the title and everything. Even as Intercontinental, like, as Intercontinental Champion, like, he was facing guys like Skidder. He was facing guys like... Um, I think Berserker got a shot. <laughs> AKA wannabe um, Bruiser Brody. Huss! Basically, basically, it was him having glorified squash matches every week while they were building up the, the, the angle between him and Shawn Michaels. And then literally, it was Shawn doing the job to Brett for the Intercontinental title for a fucking year and a half until Shawn finally beat Bulldog for it because Bulldog got most of the steroids. Right. Right. Yeah, because here's, because here's, just to give, because look at this. So 
So he wins the Intercontinental title for Mr. Perfect at SummerSlam 91 in a match that some still say is one of the best SummerSlam matches of all time. Mm-hmm. I would tend to agree. Um, January 92, we mentioned the, him dropping to the Mountie at the house show. Piper wins it at the Rumble two days later. And then mm-hmm. Brett wins the belt back from Piper at WrestleMania 8. Yeah. Um, clean, one of the few clean pinfall wins ever against Roddy Piper in his entire career. Yeah. Um, then you have him beating Shawn Michaels on Wrestling Channel, a challenge in July, mm-hmm. um, which was te- technically the first ever ladder match in WWE yep. history was that. Yep. Uh, that wrestling challenge show. Yep. Uh, and then he drops the belt to uh, Davy Boy SummerSlam 92. And then he wins the WWE title uh, mid October. Yeah, yeah. mid October in Saskatoon from Flair. Um, That's when every wrestling fan learned where Saskatoon, Canada was. And we right. And like, and that was also a point where like, That, that was, was the finally era of the titles at house shows. That was also the point where, um, that that match finally ended roughly a year of a lot of hot potato. Mm-hmm. At least at that time, what was considered hot potato. Now, hot potato eventually become completely rebranded during the Attitude Era yeah. to be in. You could be twenty four hours. Yeah, but, um. But you think from November 91 till Brett wins in October of 92, you have Hogan walking into Survivor Series as champion. Taker wins with a tombstone on the chair at Survivor Series. Drops it back to Hogan less than a week later Tuesday in Texas. Then the belt is held up and they have it at the Rumble in Albany, New York in 92. Flair wins the Rumble match to become champion. Savage wins Savage it at WrestleMania. Then House Show drops I mean, it back to Flair. Right. How, after after SummerSlam, SummerSlam, when Savage at it SummerSlam hurt. defending against Warrior at Perfect and Flair fucked up Savage's leg to help yep. set up the drop back to Flair. Mm-hmm. And then finally they're like, okay, let's give Brett a shot. Fuck it. Well, also combined with if Flair I, was leaving. Right. That's, that's the other thing. The other part of it was Flair was not in a good way up here and was just like, I need to go home. I need to go home. I need to go home. Um, And that eventually obviously leads up to the loser leaves match on Raw between Mr. Perfect and Ric Flair in early 93. And that closed that chapter. And then Brett was the champ from October. Right. And Brett was, and this was the time where I think it was during this reign, wasn't it? Where was before he dropped I think it was before he was it before it had to be I think was before he dropped to Yoko that he had that title defense that everybody keeps talking about even to this day with Sean Waltman in or White Plains was it? Yeah. It was White Plains actually I think. Yeah that was um, that was his second title reign. So that was after WrestleMania ten. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um but either I mean like you have Brett from October of ninety two up through WrestleMania nine and we're, we're not going to – we're not even going to dignify and what the fuck happens. Like, and in all honesty, that's when the era of – like when I said fighting champion, that was the era of the champion is on Raw or fucking superstars every week. 
defending the title, but literally his title defenses were against fucking Samu, Berserker, Papa Shango, Skinner, the goon, like not viable people, but they were title matches. Right. Let me see here. Anyways, um, we are way off topic. Yeah. Yeah. We need sorry. to get back to fucking stupidity with the open door title. <laughs> right. Um there was another thing. Oh. But oh yeah, so what do you call? Yeah, so no, we did the open door title. No, so now well, we're talking about punk and MJF. Cause Oh, well, I don't know if we had jumped over, but there was something with Punk and MJF that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, well, I, I kind of jumped over it, but go ahead. Yeah, so the thing was, like, Punk Punk gets his comeback in the fucking promo off and just buries this fucking kid. And does so by like telling MJF he's going for low-hanging fruit, yet Punk is literally plucking lines off of the fucking internet. How many fucking basement dwellers have called fucking have called MJF a less a less famous Miz in, in the past year? That's all you Probably ever fucking see. That's all you see. That you want to talk about low fucking hanging fruit? That shit is on the ground. And like, here is my problem: was I was thinking the moment they started doing this was oh maybe Punk's gonna put this kid over. Punk's not putting this kid over. It's going to be another one in the line of CM Punk is God. And we're going to take this kid who, if you look at because AEW is all about rankings and all about wins and losses. For those of you on the audio, you're not seeing my incessant use of air quotes here. Just slightly. Just a little. Just a tip. Anyways, uh, so you're looking at, okay, so Punk came in September of this year. Danielson came in September of this year. They've both been there for a couple of months. Or was it August? Whatever, I don't know. They've both been there for a cup of coffee. Danielson and Punk, both in this year, have had like six televised matches, including pay-per-views already, each in a couple of months' span. Right. Could be a little more, but I know it's at least five each with them. Right. Danielson's already in the title picture because he won the Eliminator, which it doesn't fucking matter because he's literally got a handful of fucking matches under his belt. And now he's running through the Dark Order like anyone fucking cares. Which goes back to fighting champion, just fighting jobbers. You've got Punk, who is... They're, they're trying to say he's rising other guys' stock by having him work all these mid-card people like Daniel Garcia and shit like this on Rampage. No one fucking cares. Both of them have been there for a couple of months and each have five to seven matches apiece under their belts. MJF has been with this company since day one. MJF, to date this year, has had five matches total for the year. Undefeated. I'm talking singles matches. I'm not talking like bullshit fuckery cinematic matches. Um, this is a kid who 
has made himself an attraction. Unlike fucking Brock the cunt, who like shows up when the fuck he wants and then disappears for months, MJF is always there. And if he's working a match or not, is cutting a promo and keeping stock in his character. Same as, and people can fucking hate on me, same as fucking Roddy Piper. Piper wasn't working matches, but he had Piper's pit. He kept himself fucking relevant. MJF is your golden heel. And instead, you're going to have him job out to CM Punk. And you're going to turn Danielson heel instead for no fucking reason to take the title off of Adam Page. Because you know that Page isn't a draw. And you think by putting your belt on yet another ex-WWE guy, it's going to raise your ratings. It's not going to work. And I'm sorry, but once again, here comes Punk. Can't keep WWE's dick out of his mouth. And I was going to, like, I had this, I, 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 like, jotted it down on a napkin or something because I wanted to fucking remember it. Punk saying MJF is a less famous Miz. Number one, it's giving credence to your fucking competition, which you don't do. Correct. We don't fucking mention the other company. That would be like, that would be like the New Day coming out and calling the Usos a more tan version of the Young Bucks. They would never do that. You know why? Because it lends credence to the minor league. And Vince was nicer nuts. Right, exactly. Vince is like fucking nuts, but Vince will not let you know. Vince rightly so won't let you mention the the other fucking company. Like you can mention WCW if you want, because Vince fought WCW, and you know you can mention shit like that. But you can't fucking come out and call fucking Big E fucking uh you know you 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 can't have someone come out on Raw and call Big E a jacked up uh, version of Powerhouse Hobbs. Like that's not gonna happen. You don't lend credence to your competition. Because it makes you look like a bitch. But yeah. Anything else? Uh, let me check. I had some other notes. <laughs> oh boy, he has notes, folks. Give him a moment. MJF, 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 snoring. He's snoring. Like I literally like wrote like these. Oh yeah, and this, then we had Punk versus QT Marshall, which tell me why I'm supposed to care about Punk versus AEW's version of the Brooklyn Brawler. Not really. Q- I love QT to death. He's an amazing hand. It's good for him to be there as a trainer, but no one's considering him anything fucking formidable at all. And that match was literally the the CM Punk Greatest Hits album. And then we got fucking... It was like all of Dynamite was like a series of like glorified squash matches. We got to see the Gun Club versus Bear Country. Which Bear Country has been on YouTube. They've had... I think they were in one trios match on Dynamite or Rampage or something like that. And these are... They're local guys... Like, one's from Mass and one's from New York. 
And I saw somewhere where they're like, we just worked a, a, a sold out 10,000 seat arena and you can on TV and you can never take that away from us. Like, yeah, I can. You know why? Because number one, it was, wasn't sold out. Number two, it wasn't 10,000 people. Number three, you were in a fucking squash match. You don't see guys like Barry Horowitz and Fred Yale and Burt Centeno sitting there going, I was in the fucking second from the top on Raw for eight weeks straight. No one gives a fuck. True. Fucking Jamie Hayter. Well, we know how much you seem to despise her. Oh, I love now on commentary, Excalibur tried to fucking tried to fucking schmoz the marks and said that Omega and Nadelson went to a 60-minute time limit. Like, no, sorry. I have this thing called a watch. And then, oh, Danielson versus Colt Cabana. This is the start of Danielson going through the Dark Order and working his way to Adam Page. Number one, you don't have to work your way toward Adam Page because you won the fucking the, the tournament to be the number one contender. So what the fuck does it matter? And it's not like the Dark Order are heels. They're baby faces. They're not going to interfere in a title match. So it's not like you're systematically eliminating all the people to get to the champion because it doesn't work in reverse. You can't have the heel doing that to the baby face table. It doesn't fucking work. And then they pulled the bull. I don't know if you saw this shit where they had Danielson plant a fake fucking tooth on the mat after the fucking after the match and say that he knocked out one of Cabana's teeth. Nope, didn't see that. He goes over, like literally, plain as fucking day. He goes over, and you see him circling the fucking mat looking for what he's supposed to be looking for, and the ref drops it. And it's this shiny white piece of plastic. And then they go to the commercial break. Then they come back, and here's the promo, and he's got it in his hand. He's like, see, I knocked out one of his teeth. It was pathetic. Because, number one, we all know Danielson is fucking one of the safest people on the planet. He wouldn't deliberately knock out one of his friend's teeth. And plus the way he was doing, because it was doing the you're going to get your head kicked in bit where he's holding his arms and kicking him in the head. He's heel kicking uh -huh. him in the side of the head here. How's that going to knock out one of his teeth? Like it was just, it was, it was fucking pathetic. It was another fucking stupid. It's like when Shayna Baszler knocked out one of Asuka's teeth, they were like, fuck. Well, we have to mention it because it happened on, on camera. This, they actually fucking planted it. And it just looked fucking stupid. And then we get to the main event with the fucking eight man with Cody desperately trying to still be a baby face. Coming out thinking he's fucking Okada. And then Cody decides to reenact the John Cena t-shirt bit from One Night Stand Part 2. Where he took off his weight belt and he threw it in the crowd. Now, mind he had you, him throwing it back at him? Yeah. Now, mind you, when Cena did it and he, talk, he tossed his hat and shirt out into the crowd, that shit, boom, was right back in the ring. This one, he tosses the belt out in the crowd and there's hesitation. And then, like, a minute later, the belt gets thrown back. So it's like Cody tossed it to a plant who didn't catch it, and security probably had to go over and tell the 
but tell the guy that caught it, listen, a plant's supposed to get that. And then the plant throws it back because then there was this whole elaborate thing with the belt where it got tossed back and then Andrade takes it and hides it under the ring and then takes it back out to throw it back at like, it was, you can tell that there was more to it than it, it's, it, it's Cody being a fucking cunt trying to compare himself to John Cena again. And it's not going to fucking work. That wasn't me nodding off at of you, by the way. That was me nodding off the whole notion. Right. But it was just, you could tell that the whole thing was fucking contrived. And fucking, and fucking IWC is eating it up. Like, oh, they threw the belt back at him. Oh, Cody, turn heel already. You're feeding right into what he wants you to. Because for how many years were people going, Cena just turned heel already? But Cody's trying to, like, Cena was getting it because the corporate animal was shoving it shoving him down our throats and the audience the the 18 to 49 audience didn't like it but the kids did cody is trying to reenact that same manufacturedness except they only cater to the 18 to 49 male demographic right so there's no disconnect there's it's the they're missing the other part of the equ- equation. It's coming off as disingenuous. Exactly. <clears throat> I know. <sighs> Man. I know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into. Uh, the, the bulk of what I really wanted to discuss, just want to bring up our friends over at Johnstone Supply in Troy. And, you know, I, I've been mentioning it to you, if you've been listening or watching this podcast, I've been mentioning for a while. You got to check the filters in your with your furnace. You got to check, make sure all the coils are good. You got to make sure the actual uh, hot water heater is working fine. All that jazz got to check your furnaces it's that time of year folks where we're getting below freezing at night in certain parts of the country and you got to get things checked out so final few months of 2021 holidays are approaching you got to make sure your home is safe and warm this season it can do that thanks to johnstown supply in troy Goodman furnaces are now back in stock and they're not only made in America, but they're also the perfect blend of efficiency and dependability for wherever you may live. Doesn't matter if you live in the city, out in the country, wherever, they will work for you. And don't forget to clean out your air filters before your friends and family visit this season. That way, you're not stuck with a cold home when people are trying to visit from out of town and people are wondering, what the hell does this guy not pay his heat bill? Find out about ways to purify the air in your home and to adjust your air filters before the big holiday events by checking out Johnstone Supply in Troy. They're located on 6th Avenue, and they're typically open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., or you can give them a call at 518-272-5922, where it's George, Tom, Kev, James, anyone on the crew. They are there to offer you the best recommendations for this season, even if it is something just as simple as changing out the filters or replacing your entire home heating system. Call them today before you are left out in the cold, literally and figuratively, to get the best advice on how to prepare your home for the snow and the colder temperatures to come in the near future. 
Johnstone Supply and Troy, 518-272-5922, or check them out on Facebook.com backslash Johnstone Supply Troy NY. So now we get into a couple different things. Um, one that is really just general business related. And this is something that I teased last week that we were going to talk about this week. It's the new economics of pro wrestling. And I think it's only appropriate that we bring it up now for a couple of reasons. Number one, as mentioned before, there's there's many terrific reasons why I asked JJ to be a co-host on the show. But among them being, he is a promoter and booker for a number of years and provide can provide that special analysis you wouldn't typically expect out of a podcast in that he can explain things on a different level than, say, just a general wrestling talent would be able to that literally just walks in, wrestles, walks out. JJ brings a totally different experience than anyone else that I know of. And he's not going to bullshit you. That's the other end of it. Plus, on top of it, we're at a point now where your local indie shows are going to start popping up and putting on shows again. I know there's a local, there's one local company that's already produced two shows in my area. Another one that had its first show post COVID this past weekend and a third relatively local promotion that has run a show in Vermont already and is going to run a show in Pittsfield in the near future. Pittsfield mass that is. So indie shows are starting to really become a thing again around the area at least here in New York and in the Northeast. I know they've been running in New England for a little bit near you, JJ. So I think what people need to understand, because I mentioned this to you off air one day um, in our Facebook chat, and I had to really chew on it and sit back and reflect on it before we could bring it up on this show. Mm -hmm. And that is we all need to understand and embrace that at least for the time being, until business gets to a certain point like it was pre-COVID again, there is a new economic system to the business that people just need to embrace and understand. And it, it might mean, um, you know, uh, the indie show, you could have gone to two to three years ago for 10, maybe 15 bucks. You're maybe now looking at 25 to 30. Um, so I, what I'd like to discuss here is get your perspective on it as a promoter and a booker and just try to explain the economics of the business in general, um, even pre-COVID, because I feel like people don't fully understand the kind of investment mm-hmm. that has to go into running shows um, and obviously, there's certain regulations from state to state. Like, there's something that I think is that's different in New York that I'll bring up at the end. But yeah, you still got the athletic commission. Don't get me fucking started. Um, <laughs> so, at least from a Connecticut and Massachusetts perspective, where I know you've run shows before, just kind of get into, you know, what goes into all of that for you as a promoter. Okay, so what a lot of people don't realize is the amount of upfront seed money it takes to run a single show. And this is the problem why there's a lot of, you see, and you still see it to this day, you see a lot of fly-by-night independent companies who come into some money because they get a stimulus check that 
that I'm going to be completely blunt. This happened a lot in the past year. You see people who got their fucking stimulus and said, I'm going to run an indie company. Because, oh, I've got two grand. That's plenty. No, it's not. No, it's not. And it's these, it's these people that think that they will just book a bunch of indie darlings and that's going to be a draw and they'll make enough money at the gate to pay everyone and recoup their money and be able to keep running. No, that's not the way it is. I will tell you right now, one of the reasons why my company ran was running on a sporadic basis other than the general health of myself and my business partner was because of the economics of it pre-COVID. And that was that we're not going to run a show if we're going to lose a lot of money. We can stand to break even. We can, like, we don't like it, but we can stand to lose a couple hundred as long as we know that we're building momentum. But there's a lot of, com there, there's a lot of companies, you, you take a bath on your show because you need to figure going in, you need to have the money for the venue that you rent, which venue rentals have gone up because there was over a year where places couldn't rent out their venues and now we're trying to recoup expenses. You've got to pay for event insurance in a lot of cases. Um, most companies don't own their own ring. You have to rent a ring. In which case, there's a very small amount of people, like especially in my area, that do ring rentals. And their cost has gone up because they're trying to recoup lost expenses. Plus, they have to pay for gas or a truck. Hold on. Sorry. So they have to pay for gas or a truck or they need to pay a ring crew, like at least something because they have like, usually when you're renting a ring, you're renting it from a place that has, that's associated with a wrestling school who has students who should be helping with ring crew, but that doesn't happen. So what happens is they will need a couple of indie workers to come with them to get a couple of bones thrown to them to put up the ring in association with possibly getting a match on the show. That's a whole nother animal for another day. You've got to look at advertising because here's something that so many fucking wannabe fly-by-night promoters don't understand is making a fucking Photoshop image and putting it on fucking Facebook and Instagram is not advertising. You need to, at the very, very, very bare minimum, print physical flyers and posters and go to the town where you're running and go to local businesses requesting if you can put up a poster in their window, you put them up on telephone poles, you make smaller flyers, you fly your cars in shopping centers, you do whatever you can. People like, it's amazing how when I was at the fucking SmackDown show in Hartford, I come outside and there's two, pe three people who I know in the past said to me, flyering does nothing, who are outside flyering for a show and for a school. In the fucking cold of night at 11 o'clock on a Friday fucking night when they couldn't fucking help me when I needed to with one fucking foot. Anyways, advertising. You need, like, there's ways to get sponsorships. That's a whole, that, that, that's a whole bunch of, like, 
if you can do it, if you can't do it, there, there are certain ways to do it. Usually it's hard to get sponsorships unless you're running a fundraiser. Um, in which case there's a lot of other things like people ask, like, why don't you just run at a high school? Well, if you want to run at a school in any town, not only do you have to pay for the venue, not only do you have to get insurance, but you have to pay one to two custodians on duty for the duration of your event. And because it's not during school hours, those custodians get paid time and a half or double time. And that's coming out of your pocket. So the basic expenses just before the doors even open on the day of the show, like I will be completely blunt, to run the venue that I used to run in Torrington, Connecticut, which was a small town and a small venue, just for rental of the venue, insurance, ring rental, and a bare minimum advertising budget, you're talking $1,000 right there, minimum. Then it comes to, yes, go ahead. I just wanted to insert something real quick because you mentioned a high school. Another thing, if you're, flat but a phrase, if you're a company with more progressive storytelling, we'll mm -hmm. call, or extreme storytelling, you could occasionally run into that prick who runs a school or the yeah. tricks, certain tricks in a PTA or whatever, or a school board that are like, I don't want that stuff in my school. No, no, no. So either A, you're going to get fucking rejected right out the door, or B, you'll be allowed in, but they'll say, no, this, no, that, and no, the other thing. And then you're that totally a, handicapping all your creative. And that was an issue I ran into just bare minimum was because like we ran in the Knights of Columbus. We were booking Hammer Tunis when he was using the name Sexy Jesus. Knights of Columbus is a Christian organization. We almost got our last show shut down because of that. Because the Knights were not happy. Like the actual, like the state chapter, not the actual venue. And I had to skirt around that. But yeah, you have to run into that. But then, it, and then it's a matter of you know, your basics of running the show and trying to find the other revenue streams in order to do that. You've got to, you can't just have social media. You've got to pay for a fucking website. You've got to pay for advertising other than flyers. Like, and as I kind of skirt back around to it was, you know, if you can get radio time or um, make short videos and, you know, now you can fucking have them as like, you know, ads on YouTube and shit like that in between videos and stuff like you can do that. It's a matter of having a budget. You need to take personal time out to do whatever media blitz possible. I used to have to sit there and write press releases and send them to local newspapers and see, I used to make appearances at the local radio station. You, you know, it's, that's personal time that, that goes into it. And sometimes like, if you're doing appearances and you want to have talent for the show, you got to see who can take the time out of their schedule to do that. You know, you're talking about making merch for your company. You're talking about buying your fucking belts, which. Oh, luckily we've gone, we've gotten away from the days where people just take replica belts and put stickers on them because whew, fucking early mid two thousands. That's all you That was saw. a thing. That was that a big was thing. thing. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. The original DP, the original DPW tag team titles were replica belts that, but we literally took like I remember sitting there and measuring the banners 
and then doing Photoshop and printing like different labeling and stuff and, you know, doing using shiny gloss photo paper and double-sided tape and doing it and covering the logo. So it looked really nice. But at the end of the day, that's what it was. And there's some companies that didn't even fucking try. Like they would literally just take a fucking replica of the big gold belt and go to Home Depot and buy like the letters that you put on a mailbox and just put like, you know, ACW like in those letters, like on the belt and be like, here's my championship. Or, or and I, I unfortunately ring announced for a company that did this. They bought weight belts and then they had stainless steel plates made and the plates were painted with Crayola paint. I can't make this shit up. But anyways, and now, but now there's belt makers and there's some that are, they literally have like stock fucking belts that look like shit that I've seen companies around here that poached my fucking venue use. And then there's actual like, and then there's like, like uh, RPW, we actually had like, we, we were one of the first people to like use one of those guys in Afghanistan that makes belts. And that's where the, the old RPW belts came from. And he did a good job, but those belts cost, you know, anywhere from if you want, even if you want like a basic belt made, you're talking like 300 bucks to something really custom, which could run you up towards the brand. So this would be a good time for me to bring up our good friend of uh, our good friend of Godzilla Media Belts by Dan. Check out leatherbydanbot.com. Go ahead, JJ. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you want quality work, you got to fucking pay for it. I mean, you can go cheap route and you're going to look cheap. But I mean, that's, you know, and that, that's the way it is. But so you're looking at all this shit going into just getting your doors open. And that's not counting paying your roster. Now, I will tell you this. There has never been a time since I have booked for DPW where a person has not gotten paid. We have always made sure that every talent who we have booked has gotten paid. And that includes referees, ring announcers, managers. You need to get paid in one way, shape, or form. I've literally had like people like ancillary people, like referees or ring announcers be like, just, you know, because I would always do the concessions be like, just give me like some of your sandwiches and I'm good. Like, because everyone fucking goes nuts for my pulled pork apparently. But still, we try to make sure everyone gets compensated in some way, shape, or form. There's a lot of companies that aren't like that. There's a lot of companies where you will hear, sorry guys, the house was light. Sorry guys, I can't cover this today. And there's a lot of come and the problem is there's a lot of companies where they will bring in an ex WWE guy or a current impact guy or a semi AEW guy and they'll get paid the bulk of what the gate brought in and then they'll say sorry the gate was light and all the local guys don't get paid. I know several companies that are still running to this day that still do that model and you will see a rotating door of talent with them. Because the local guys who would always be on the shows originally, who would help with the ring, all that stuff are no longer around because they got tired of being dicked. Because you can't keep dicking your people forever. Here's something that a lot of people are, and I'm going to be a complete douche about it. People, people fucking clamor about how Beyond Wrestling is this amazing organization. People don't realize that the, for the first three years of its inception, Beyond Wrestling Number one, ran empty shows out of the New England Pro Wrestling Academy. And then after that, when they started actually running regular shows where they let fans in, never paid their workers. 
because it was an organization for the workers. It was for the boys, yada, 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 and no one ever got paid. But they did it for the love of the business. And good on you. Here's your fucking medal. But at the end of the day, even they had to start paying people because you can't very well get this build up and then you're drawing houses and then people are like, why the fuck am I traveling out here and not getting paid? Which brings me to workers getting paid. Now, I understand how some workers, like if you, you know, if you're in my area in New England and you want to book someone that, that you that primarily works out of Pennsylvania and Jersey, that yeah, they've got to, they've got to travel. They've got tolls to pay, stuff like that. And that's understandable. That's why I always try to, you know, as a as a as a booker, I like to I like to try to find groups of people who will travel together in order to lower their expenses. That's a that's a big reason why I've always been a proponent of the of the boys from House of Glory. Uh, even back with our with our PW and NEFW, always worked with House of Glory because you will get four to five guys who are willing to all pack into a car together, and you are able to pay a considerable rate to get them all to come and it's it's less of a burden instead you know because if you've got four guys in one car that are coming from new york they have to cross the george washington and pay a ten dollar toll there plus gas it's a lot easier than having four cars you know basic economics on that but then you get wrestlers who think they're worth more than what they are and once again i'm going to be completely blunt I always looked at it from the viewpoint that my mentor, who was a booker and a promoter, you know, kind of gave me and as a as a foresight, was that these guys are coming in and yes, they have to travel. They come in, but they are asking for X amount of money for five to twenty-five minutes of work. That's it. Now, yeah, you hire a plumber, you hire a mechanic. They have to pay, you have to pay them, you know, like $100 an hour. And that's because they have overhead. They have a van that houses all their tools. They have a garage that houses all their stuff that they have to pay the overhead on. When you have a wrestler who says, I want $500 and they're coming in for a 10-minute match, let me extrapolate the math for you. That means that they think they deserve $3,000 an hour for their work. $50 That's more than a WWE minute. guys can make. What? $50 a minute. Yeah, $50 a minute. Yeah, exactly. That's more than WWE guys make. Like when you, when you figure out the math. And Grant, okay, so there are like, if there's an ex-WWE guy you can bring in, get an autograph signing out of them, all that stuff. Okay, that makes sense. You know, you bring in a guy, you do a fan meet and greet, they sign autographs for an hour, they shake hands, they do photos. Then they come in, they do their match, they cut a promo, whatever. Then okay, I can see it. Because also there's the second part of this equation. The wrestler who is charging the amount has to be worth the amount they are charging. And this is what I mean by that. If a wrestler tells me now, and this is pre-COVID, 
when I was charging $10 a ticket, $15 for early entry, but $10 GA. If a wrestler tells me they want $100, that means that they firmly believe in their head, or at least they should be believing, because this is the argument, that a minimum of 10 people in that audience are specifically there to see them. Now, when it comes to an indie darling, someone who's not on TV, okay, depending on what kind of TV. YouTube is not TV. Ring of Honor, oh, that's a little more. I can see that. Impact TNA, no. Like, unless you were next WWE guy before you went there, no. So they have to be worth what they're charging, which is why, like, a lot of guys, and here's, this is what I don't fucking get, is back in the mid-2000s, when I was, when I was green as shit, I saw these motherfuckers bitching about a $75 payday. Like, I've never made that much as a worker. Granted, I'm only a manager slash ring announcer slash commentator, but there's guys that would bitch about a $75 payday in 2005 where there's always young, hungry talent. And you, you know, if I'm sorry, but if you have never been on TV and I don't count fucking YouTube because AEW dark and elevation will always be referred to as YouTube by me. If you have never been on TV, if you think you are worth any more than $50, you need to consider where you're coming from. And granted, there are there are some people who have plenty of experience who obviously have paid more than that. But when you've got a bunch of these guys who have done nothing but work local school shows and by local schools, I mean, wrestling schools, not high school fundraisers who come swaddling in thinking they deserve 85 to $150 or people who live in New York who are telling me I don't come out for anything less than 350 plus trans. No, no, that's not economically viable. Which is, and it's really bad because there are companies around here that are literally just doing shows to keep their school's doors open who are charging way too much to watch student showcases. And I'll leave that at that. But so going back around to it, and I'll go back to mid 2000s. Um, we used to run in Naugatuck, Connecticut at a venue that was not cheap and we charged $15 general admission. And we were told back in the mid 2000s that that was too much. We eventually, once we had our own school, we would charge, we would do Sunday internet TV tapings and charge $5 a head and then do one big show at the end of the month and charge $15 ahead for that. We were still being told that's too much. So when I, when I was part of opening the new DPW, we decided to do the 
$10 general admission price point and the $15 early entry VIP show, which was most places would do a pre-show with a couple of student matches. And then you would get to the, you know, you know, dark matches per se. And then you would get to the main show. What we would do was we would actually put higher quality matches as the VIP show. So you weren't just seeing students, you were seeing seasoned people putting on good matches. And that way you would get three extra matches for your extra five bucks. That worked out for a little bit, but in the end, we just had to go, you know, because of the, the economics of the business, we had to go to $15 flat out. And we just made it first come first serve because I personally have never been a believer in charging front row at indie shows. If you're in a high school setting in a high school gymnasium, maybe. But if you are in an Elks Lodge and Knights of Columbus and American Legion, any of those where you are in a small venue, Charging extra for front row is bullshit because you are literally charging someone an extra five to $10 to be this much closer to the ring than you are. That doesn't work. And God love anybody for being able to do that and be able to work people out of that extra money. Fine. I personally don't believe in it. I know they say that you can't make it in this business being a nice guy and I'm not a nice guy, but I don't believe in screwing over the fans. I believe in not working them out of every single cent because once you start nickel and diamond people, then you start to, you know, then you start turning them off. But yeah, so we've come to how now post COVID, you're not going to find a $15 show anymore. You're finding $20, $25, $30. And to this, I say that if they're charging 25 or more, there had better be an ex-WWE guy on that fucking uh, on that show in some way, shape, or form, either working a match or doing a meet and greet or something. You need at least one ex-WWE person on that show. Not AEW, not Impact, not Ring of Honor, ex-WWE. Because when it comes down to it, indie wrestling is about attracting casual fans and casual fans are not going to come out for your local guys. No matter how talented they may be, you need brand recognition. So, like for instance, there was a show that happened this past weekend, which I, I, I was originally supposed to like be there, but I, I still can't get around. Um, and they were charging $25 a seat, but they had Raven appearing, which Raven's your draw. That brings people in. And that was in my backyard. That was about, it it was in a small town, like five minutes outside of Albany. So like 40 minutes from me, basically. Right. And like, and that, that company was on the same in the past. They brought brought in Lanny Poffo. They brought in Tony Atlas. Like you need name recognition, whether it be for someone who's in their forties, who recognizes the names from the eighties, who's like, Oh, I want to go take a picture and I'm going to bring my kid. So they can experience what I did as a kid to someone from the attitude era where someone who may not have children now can go, Oh, I can see my attitude era hero to someone who has a kid once again, who you see people like Tyler Breeze and Fandango and all them who have just been released. We're taking indie bookings and go, now we get to see them up close without having to go to a WWE event. And we can get an autograph and a picture with them. That's your selling point. 
Now, every company can do pre-show meet and greets with your own talent. That's fine. But you need to realize that without a name brand recognition there, there's not a lot of people that are going to care about your talent because, and this goes to something back that I've seen talked about for years, which I wholeheartedly agree with. And actually, I believe it was Sean Gorman from Chaotic Wrestling who really put it into perspective for me about eight years ago. Um, when you go see Metallica in concert and you pay $50 to see them, you don't, you don't get to go to the bar and hang out with them afterwards. They don't show up at the table next to you at TGI Fridays. You cannot charge for a meet and greet with your local talents when your local talents are bringing in friends and family and your regular talent and your regular fan base who know them personally, who talk to them online and who will hang out with them after the show or hang out with them before the show in the parking lot. There is no money in that. So sorry, but that's the way it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the main company that runs, um, the main company that's been doing the majority of shows around this area, <clears throat> they're usually pretty good about booking, try to book at least two um, two talents that, you know, from the mainstream, the pat and the mainstream, yeah. whether it be past or present. Um, by the way, the company you were just mentioning that ran a show over the weekend, uh, their next booking is January 22nd. Just mm-hmm. put in your head right now. You probably yeah. knew that already because, you know, the owner probably already talked to you about that. Um, I'm going to try to pull up because they trying to remember when their, the next show is for the other company I was just talking about. Um, their next show, that can't be right. When is it? Oh, they just posted a whole calendar of events. Holy Jesus. Um, is that immortal? Yeah. Uh, when the hell is this next show? I don't remember. Um, well, their last show of the year was um, the weekend prior, the weekend before Thanksgiving. And just as a note, like the guys they had were, the special guests they had were uh, Dirty Dango, or mm-hmm. formerly known as Fandango. Mm-hmm. They had uh, George Ole, who was their former champion, but has also recently appeared in AEW. Um, I'm trying to remember what his name was beforehand. The Punjabi line. I can't remember what his actual name was. Oh, that was the- Robo. Robo. Yes. Um, they had Just Incredible booked as well, and and they had Vicky Guerrero come in. Um as a manager. Yeah. But I mean, the main greet though, that they did ahead of time, um, was focused on Vicky. I believe it was Vicky Dango incredible. It was focused yeah. on right. like, they get it. <laughs> they get it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, you have to have common sense. Really. That's the most important thing. Cause like, I'll give you a perfect example because you mentioned the stimulus check thing. Now, this was a stimulus check guy. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a certain promotion that opened 
for maybe about six months in Connecticut um, that I had the, at first I thought it was the honor and it became the dishonor of working for. You know what I'm getting to. Um, oh, yeah, you were a real warrior. <sighs> yeah. Um, first show was end of July of 13, 14, something like that. I think it was 14. Uh, end of July of 14, and their last Runner show. Nomads. Were... Yeah. Oh, no, it was end of. No, sorry. End of June was the first show. Because all of July, they were doing like the showcase kind of shows you were mentioning yep. um, at their wrestling school. There's. Yeah, the school. There... Damn. I'm gonna give you a name. I'm gonna give you a name for somebody to talk to about that. They have a whole story behind it. Go talk to Bobby Ocean. Um, oh boy. Da. Da. Like mess. Hot mess. Hot mess rolled on top on top of hot mess. Um. And then the last show. The last show I worked for them was end of July because we went. Our crew worked three shows for them. It was end of June, mid July, end of July. Uh, yeah, end of July. And then they would end up doing, I think they did another show in end of August and end of September. Because mm -hmm. there's nothing like hot shotting yourself to working every month when you just started. Yeah. And uh, he basically hot shot his, his company out of business by, I want to say the last actual show they did was, it was either that September show or they did one in October and November, and that was it. So, and I remember yeah. their I remember their big problem. Number one was, I don't I'm not sure if it was Caleb or the other guy, but they were more focused on trying to put NEFW out of business than they were on their own product. Like literally, that's they were trying to like start a, like a Monday Night War between two indies. Like, and it didn't matter because we were running in Mass at the time, and they were running in Connecticut, like, which is the dumbest shit ever. Right. Like, but then like we started foraying into Connecticut because we did NEFW Revolution and we that was supposed to keep running out of Waterbury, which right. still, they were running it nomads in Windsor. Like you're talking a 45 minute distance between places. And they were still focused on talking shit about us rather than their own product. And that that resonated in their social media was they weren't Gee, I wonder who's doing that now in the mainstream. Hmm. <laughs> But they that resonated where they weren't talking about their own shows; they were talking about us. So guess who were drawing the three to four hundred house uh, person houses? Us, and they weren't because they were too busy talking shit about us. And then here, here was the kicker: was there were shows where they would have XWW. They booked fucking, they booked Goldust against JT Dunn. I remember this specifically. They didn't know for the September show because I remember that being the show they had Goldust booked for. They did no advertising for that show. None. Like, no flyers. They just did internet shit for Goldust versus J. And you had Goldust. But then the following month, they fucking spent God knows how much money doing professionally done radio commercials to play on the Clear Channel stations around here where their big draw was fucking Corey Chavis from Dark City Fight Club. Which... No, there's nothing against Dark City Fight Club at the time. They were a great tag team, but you're advertising one guy from it who no casual fan knew. I'm not even familiar with the name, and I've worked in these shows in New England, so ah, they were they, they 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 were big for 
for a hot minute in FIP and like they had some ROH stuff going on in like 2013, 2014. <laughs> and I'm not sure, but Corey Chavis may be related to Tatanka, but there's so many people that are related to Tatanka that. <sighs> Now, if you had dropped an Antonio Thomas on me, I'd be like, oh, that's a throwback for me. But right. Corey J, I don't know who the fuck this Corey guy is. No offense and, to Corey. No offense yeah. to Corey or if anybody that likes him is watching. I, I, yeah. just, I, don't, know, I don't know. And to bring up, to bring up Antonio Thomas, I will bring up because I love Tom to death and I have worked with Tom for years. Um, Tom is someone who understands the ins and outs of the business. Tom worked for WWE. Yep. And Tom was a big fish in a small pond in FCW. The heart, the heartbreakers, before they were the heartthrobs, they were the heartbreakers, were over like gangbusters down there. It was the heartthrobs. No, they be so they became the heartthrobs oh, when they came up to TV. Right. When okay. they were down in Florida, they were the heartbreakers. Oh, right, right, right. But they okay. didn't want to have a disconnect with having Michaels on the card. So they changed right. their name to the heartthrobs and they changed their names when they brought them up because, it, because Romeo Roselli was Johnny Heartbreaker. Right. They changed his name around Romeo Roselli. And so when when um when Johnny and Tom came up to Raw for that cup of coffee because they were only there for like two weeks mm -hmm. because the gimmick didn't get over, sadly. Um, which because I love Tom is an amazing worker, like vast amount of knowledge, can work any style, yada yada. When he got released, his first appearance was for us in the old DPW. He showed up as a run-in to work with Doc Harrisy and uh, pretty curdy because it was guys he knew it was guys he was comfortable with and he didn't big league us on his his fee he was like listen i know i was only on tv for a couple of weeks i'm not going to try to bilk you out of money whereas his tag partner is another story who for two years after that was trying to say former wwe talent i want x amount of money uh -huh. tom never did that and to this date, Tom has reinvented himself a few times. The the current gimmick he's yeah. doing, I keep forgetting the name, but he does like he basically does like a Matt Classic gimmick now. Mm. And he doesn't charm in a leg. And because he knows he's he's gotten on years, but if you need a solid hand on your show and someone who understands in-ring psychology and character work, Antonio Thomas is your fucking man. And like I said, I keep forgetting the name he's going by now, and it's really gonna piss me off until I remember it. But he gets it. He's not one of these guys that thinks that he's worth fucking X amount of money. Like there's guys who were in WWE for a cup of coffee who to this day are still thinking that they can charge fucking an exorbitant amount of money like Salvatore Sincere. Who still pulls that double booking bullshit to this day. Where he appears as Sal Sincere and as the Patriot. Oh, really? Even though Tom Brandy was not the Patriot and Del Wilkes is dead now. Yeah. That's fucked. Uh-huh. Or you got... Uh... Our, bo our boy Tom's worked under a few different names, hasn't he, huh? Man, 
Thomas Santel. Does that sound familiar? Hmm. Yes, that's Tom Santel is what he's currently working under. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, like I remember uh, the only reason that he came to mind for whatever reason is because uh, the first couple shows I ever worked in the business. Um, so my buddy who who um, had started that company, he was an indie. He was an indie guy that worked between the local New York, upstate New York scene, and also worked um, in New England. And one of the companies he worked for was EWA at the time when it was still around. Yeah, oh, so, EWA. Yeah, so them. so like he brought in. That's how he brought in. Um, that's how he brought in Antonio. He brought in. Um, uh, Billy King and ZPB mm-hmm. and um, oh fuck um, Morrison and Tunis when they were still tagging yep. um, yeah just yeah so that's yeah that was there was there was one time this was I'm pretty sure this was an actual match there was a fourth guy and I don't remember who I think I well I think I remember who it is actually I'm pretty sure there was one mat, one card where we had a four-way that was and listen to this mix. Um, you familiar with Vic Delicious? Oh yeah, I know Vic very well. Okay, Vic, Antonio, Bobby Fish when he was just getting back into Ring of Honor, mm-hmm. and Bill Carr. Nice. So you had three yeah. Devito kids and Tom. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So, any hooser. Um. Was there anything else you wanted to discuss in that regard? Uh, just on the matter of so, just just covering home as a as an independent wrestling viewer. Um, if you are looking at an indie show. Um, look to see who they have advertised every day with the mailman. Look to see who they have advertised. If you see an ex WWE name on it and they're charging $25, give them a chance. If you see, if number one, if you don't see a flyer in physical form, I'd say pass. But Mm -hmm. if you see an advertisement come up in your, you know, sponsored posts on Facebook, and it's just a bunch of local kids and you don't see a name on that poster and they're charging anywhere above $20. Don't give that company your money because they're trying to bilk you out of something. That's my yeah. sense. Understood. I understand. Um, but like the company you mentioned, um, they are running... I mentioned they're running again in end of January. They haven't announced like a big guest yet, but um, there are changing locations um, to a mall setting. So that'll be nice. interesting. Cause we ran that. I ran that mall. Oh, Jesus. When did we run that mall? 2015? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a good, it's a good site. It's a good site. I always want to do Plus, a mall show. Plus, there's there's a there's a place that's very wrestling friendly for like meet and greets. 
um, yeah. in that mall via port. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So shameless plug for via port, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but they're known to be very friendly to um, the independent wrestling companies around here for that kind of stuff. So that'll be a nice, nice transition because it's basically right next door to where the event's actually going to be. So yeah. um, that was like back a couple of years ago before COVID. Um, PVP would run in the uh, Holyoke Mall, and Zombie Hideout is there, and they do wrestling meet and reads all the time, and they still do to this day. Gotcha. And it looks like I'm trying to make sure this is right here. So the first event for the other company I was mentioning, Immortal, their first event in 2022 is going to be the week after the Super Bowl. So Saturday, February 12th. And they've already announced the first guest they have coming is Glacier. Ah! But again, People it just shows... <laughs> they do. They do. But it just goes to show, like, if, if, you, if you book smart and... Like, in the end, it comes down to two things. Smart booking, as far as the talent you bring in. Well, three things. That one, advertising properly. And three, understanding your bottom line. Yeah. Because a lot of people get in, don't understand the concept of their bottom line, and Mm -hmm. just, like that RWE example I gave, and just blow their load within four to six months. Um, there's and there's places that that blow their load before they even open the doors on day one. Like I remember, yeah. like back in back in '09, there was some indie company that was gonna run in Jersey, who advertised a fuck ton of TNA guys. Like they all showed up, and the day of the show that night, basically this dude was counting on pre-sales to be able to pay the fucking talents, and he had zero pre-sales. Yikes! And he told everyone, go home. I can't even afford to bring the ring to this building. And basically, there was video online for a bit. Like, it's obviously been scrubbed from the internet of, like, all these talents. Like, basically, he got chased out to his car, and they were, like, trying to flip his car with him in it. Because <laughs> they were pissed. Oh, I bet. I bet. This um, was back oh. when TNA guys, like, you needed to, you needed to fucking, like... Pay them Market a, yourself. a minimum of a thousand dollars. You had to pay them a minimum of a thousand dollars because that's what because Bill Barons was representing all of them. Oh, right, right. Um, just a quick side note, by the way, to add on to what you were saying about fee the pre-show fees involved. Um, New York State. Yeah, you guys, um, so New York State is a fucking animal and a half in itself. Because the athletic mm-hmm. commission just I don't know if I'm ever working on another show in New York State again. So in general, the athletic commission, I can tell you to go suck dick. How about that? Um, Do they still have to pay in New York to have a doctor and an ambulance on site for every show? Yes and yes. Jesus. Fuck that. Um, so there's that. Plus, you have to pay. I know you mentioned insurance. We have, There has to be an insurance coverage as well. And you have to pay for a license application. Oh. So, before you could even be- begin to conceptualize a show, you have to have a license in hand. Um, I mean, that does weed out a lot of fly-by-nights. Agreed. 
Um, it's just a serious pain in the dick, which is why um, the one promotion I mentioned earlier, at least for now, has been running mainly. Um, they stay. They've started with a show in Vermont, and now they're going to Massachusetts because I'm assuming the regulations are a little yeah, more lenient and don't require shit like a license and doctor and ambulance and all that shit. So I think Vermont. I know New Hampshire does, but I think Vermont still requires indie wrestlers to get licensed, but it's like twenty five dollars a year, right? Which is peanuts. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's just it's it's fucking yeah. New York New York State's pretty goddamn ridiculous, and I can't even imagine what it's like. Um, because you also got to think of overhead when I bring up guys like this. Um, if you're somebody like House of Glory that also has a, a school attached to it, I can't imagine the fucking real estate pricing for rent for a fucking wrestling school in the middle of New York City. I can't even. I can't even I, fathom the fuck that cost is. Like, in all honesty, like, that was one of the things I am surprised they survived COVID. Yeah. Like, and I mean, because they they were making their bread and butter on their house shows, which, because, like, especially now, like, and here's a double-edged sword with House of Glory, because, like I said, I've used a lot of their students. The problem is now, when they do their shows, their students aren't getting featured. It's their advertising. Yeah, they, they just didn't they just announce their return they're show. Doing, oh, that's right. yeah. They, they're bringing in Malachi Black. Yeah, they're doing Red versus Osprey. They're bringing in Malachi Black. They're doing Loki versus someone like every, all the spots. None of them are going to the students, and there are so many talented fucking students there who are basically going to be either either on the pre-show or in a fucking battle royal. Yeah, it's I, I don't know. It's kind of weird, but I mean, they're they're trying to make their money back somehow, I guess. Um, all right. So we dove into economics, long form. Um, we're not gonna get terribly in depth about WWE at this point, but there are two things that we need to discuss. Number one is something that I teased last episode. So let's just be blunt about this. You look at the talents that have been released, especially in the last two bunches that have been cut. And it's really 90% talent that Hunter was backing, had recruited, or someone affiliated with Triple H had recruited. Um, and you can just see the general tenure of tenor, excuse me, not tenure, tenor. The general tenor of NXT changed, obviously, when it rebranded to 2.0 and just a whole bunch of shit. Now, I'm not going to go so far as saying that Hunter is purposely planning a way to get out. Um, but it begs to ask a question. Is it possible... Vince is, or could be, having second thoughts or reservations about leaving the company in control of Stefan Hunter when he, if he ever, decides to give up control of the company. So, And if so, who would be the most logical? Because the obvious logical choice is currently 
They aren't much younger than Vince, so I don't know if they're really considered viable options. But I'll let you go ahead with your answer, and then we'll discuss. So I wholeheartedly believe that this is not a Vince versus Paul issue. A lot of people see it as that. I see it as a Paul versus Khan issue. What the problem is, is Vince is trying to pump up the value of the company as much as possible because they have shareholders. And on top of that, Vince wants to make sure that if he is to shuffle off this mortal coil, or if for some reason he is told he can no longer be an operator, that he is leaving the company in the highest standing possible because he believes, and in all honesty, it, it, there may be some, some semblance, to, uh, some, some credence to it. If Vince were to step down tomorrow, WWE stock would take a drop. I'm not saying it would be a significant drop, but his WWE stock would initially take a drop. He knows this. So he's trying to get the company's worth up as much as possible. So if that were to happen, it can show the shareholders that they have had a steady course of growth over the last 15 quarters that even a small drop will not affect the bottom line of the company. That's what they're, and that's that's where the, the prime worry is, is the stock value. That's the way it's been since they went public. So because of that, you've got Nick Khan, who is just a money man who doesn't see people, he just sees numbers, as I've said before, who is always trying find trying to find ways to trim off the bottom line to make the company more profitable. The problem with this is he doesn't realize that it's hindering the product that is the entire engine of the money coming in. It's basically like, let me try to come up with a, with a comparison. Okay, so if you're ever in fucking Cub Scouts and you got your Pinewood Derby car, you got to build. Yeah, I remember those. So the whole point of, make, of your Pinewood Derby car is you want to make it as aerodynamic as possible and trim off every little last piece of weight so it comes in under the weight it's supposed to, but it's light enough or heavy enough, depending on what you've done, to make it so it's the fastest possible. Nick Khan is constantly working that block of wood but he's not realizing that eventually he's going to go, I know it'll make it faster. Let me take off the wheels. And that's where the problem's going to be. It only needs three wheels to run. It doesn't need all four. It can still balance on three. And that's going to be the problem. And that's where Paul is getting pissed. I don't believe that there is a falling out between Paul and Vince. I mean, family, family argues, yes, but, if anything, there's more of a falling out between Stephanie and Nick Khan because Steph is probably trying to play the mediator as CFO or not as CFO, but uh, brand brand managing, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Who is like, listen, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be able to be a brand ambassador if you're killing all my brands. Right. Let me, so, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I'm just going to give a different analogy. Not that yeah. yours didn't work, but I just want to give another another analogy to it. 
So you'll appreciate this because it's a food analogy. Imagine you're tasked with let's just say you take up the task of wanting to make steaks okay. for the family. Mm-hmm. And you decide, I know what I'm doing. I don't need my shit to be pre-cut. I'll cut my own steaks. Assuming you have the hardware necessary to cut out your own steaks right. from, you know. The side of beef, yeah. <laughs> right. Now, when you're cutting your own steaks, you also have to factor in fat content. Right. And some people like a lot of fat. Some people don't like so much fat. Right. The fat, obviously, you can connect to excess of talent. Right. Okay. The more fat you trim off, eventually you're going to get to a point where there's not a whole lot of fat to trim off anymore, and now you're going to start cutting into the size of your steak. Mm-hmm. Okay. At this point, we're at a point where we've gone from budget cuts that made sense or 90% of the way made sense yeah. to now budget cuts where half the people are just saying, what the fuck? Right. That is the innate problem that's going on right now is that – and this is kind of just furthering the – the story you're telling. Nick Khan, and this is something we knew way back when. This is something we knew even back mm. going back to the interviews he did, I think it was before SummerSlam. The interviews where yeah, people were just going nuts there. about yeah. him. This yeah. goes back to those interviews. This is a guy who only sees numbers. Yeah. Doesn't see faces. Doesn't see uh, in-ring talent. Doesn't see the way they their personality is during meet and greets or the way they treat fans in airports. He doesn't see that. He sees names and numbers. That's all the fuck he sees. And if he sees a name and number that isn't returning what they deem as a viable for what's being given, he sees as being able to take a Sharpie Cross it out. Here's your new list. That's essentially yeah. what Nick Khan is at this point. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no pictures to these names. There's just numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, to a point where I even doubt if Nick even watches the fucking product really, except oh, maybe to check in once in a while and make sure the advertisers are getting their just due on right. the broadcasts. Which is why you have a Pizza Hut Battle Royal, right? Which. And now we're at a point where we're at a point where I've always been a proponent of WWE needing to trim down. Now the concern is becoming are they trimming down too much to where talents that probably shouldn't be getting saturated in the market are getting saturated or they're getting oversaturated beyond what they mm-hmm. should be at this point. Yeah. Namely, a lot of the talents going through your Tuesday night programming right now. 
Um, too much too soon is the best, the most operative phrase I would use at this point for uh-huh. a lot of people. Um, and I'm just going to throw out a few names. And this is not me shitting on them as talents. This I just feel like is a mutual agreement between you and I where we say they need a little more time and shouldn't be in the spotlight that's being cast on them right now. Uh-huh. Um, I'll just say number one. I know you feel this way. I'm on the fence about it still. Cora Jade's one of them. Uh-huh. Persia Parada is one of them. Tony D'Angelo. Kind of, well, yeah, Tony D'Angelo. She's kind of taken a back seat recently. Um, but I think Indy Hartwell could be one of those. I think she could use some more work. Um, as long as you don't put her in the ring again, I wouldn't use the same. But if you are going to put her in the ring again, Electra Lopez is one of those mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Um, from a male side... Tony D'Angelo. Depending on how you're going to... Tony D'Angelo. <laughs> Braun Breaker. Um, Braun needs a lot more work. I don't think he needs the level of work that you can't gain through... I'm not saying he's NXT champion ready. Like, I'm not going to put him right. on that level. Yeah. But, like, I think he's the kind of guy where he can learn on the fly because he has the DNA to be able to, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm talking guys like a Von Wagner, um, Grayson Waller, you know, just guys that you can see need more time. But unfortunately, because of your elevate and cut, or you're just flat out cutting at the NXT level, Mm -hmm. You're oversaturating the market with products that aren't ready to oversaturate the market. Um, So that leaves them in a bind, which leaves you with, just as an example, this is your War Games men's match. Unbelievable. With four legitimate talents on one team that are established, good work, well, three of which are established good workers. You can probably figure out which one doesn't fit like the others. <laughs> um, hint, hint, far right. Um, and if you're not watching the YouTube video, I'll just say it. It's LA Knight. Um, and then your other team, you've got Carmelo Hayes. That, that's probably the one guy I have zero complaints about. Yeah. Yeah. But Braun Breaker, he fits the mold for what they're trying to do with this match. Mm-hmm. But again, like I mentioned, like he's going to be a guy that has to, he's going to, He's going to be a guy that he's going to get pushed to the moon regardless right now. He's just going to have to learn on the fly. Mm-hmm. But Grayson Waller, Tony D'Angelo, the fuck are we doing here? This is the problem. I'll tell you the exact problem with it. It's because they're trying to get instant gratification in an instant gratification society, which is, number one, the, the wrong thing to do. But number two, here's the problem. Because, unfortunately... And like, I really hate this because I know Gabe Sapolsky is part of this. Gabe has become brainwashed by that WWE animal where he's in that mentality along with fucking whoever else is booking down there, Kevin Dunn or whatever, because Trips is still on hiatus. That 
they're going to take those four young guys and they're going to win that fucking war games match. I guarantee you they're going to win. And that way, according to the guys booking it, they're instantly going to be over their main event. Bound. They're ready. They, they beat the, the four workhorses. They can do it. It's time. This is the new era. We're going to shove it down your fucking throat. These are our top guys now. Fuck you. These other guys, we're making them coaches. Suck a dick. This is what you get now. Doesn't work, man. It doesn't work like that. I know. The I business agree. has never looked worked like that. Exactly. And then your woman's match. Same thing. With the exception of Cora Jade, same thing. And I'm not even a fan of Kaylee Ray, but same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, like, that's the only fucking word I can think of is, yeah. Uh, I, I, because it already hasn't been drilled in our fucking head, in our heads that toxic attraction are getting shoved down our fucking throats. We got to have them win a war game match, too. And the, the, the fucking sad thing, and I, it's probably going to make you laugh, the Carmelo Hayes of that team is Dakota Kai. Yeah. And it's for those of you who don't know, the War Games wins match, by the way, is Toxic Traction and Dakota Kai against Io Shirai, Raquel Gonzalez, Cora Jade, Kaylee Ray. And the men's match, by the way, since I didn't say this, is Gargano, Ciampa, Dunn, and Knight against Waller, Carmelo Hayes, Braun Breaker, Tony D'Angelo. Um, you know what's really bad? Both those matches were set up in the exact same fashion. Yep. Literally, bunch of run-ins at the end of the night and someone yelling war games. That's not how you set up a fucking war games match. That's, it's not how you fucking do it. Yeah, okay, you took a couple of existing feuds and decided to mishmash them together into this match, but that's not how a war games match works. A war games match is, here's the big bad on one side who've been running roughshod over everyone, and then here's the baby faces who are all coming together to try to take out this big, big bad. And in this case, they legit reversed it to, here's the old workhorses that everyone loves and here's the people we want you to love or want you to fucking pay attention to so we're gonna have them squash the fucking people you love and let's just face it let's just be blunt about this at least on the men's side they fucked up not one but two legitimate matches they could have had for war games yep because they promoted hit row and left yep. Legato del Fantasma jerking their dicks in the wind. Yep. And then you had potentially something involving Imperium. Yep. I think we had, what was it? What did we have in our heads? We had, or no, we had, uh, it was Dunn, Ridge Holland. Was it Dunn, Ridge Holland, and Imperium? Is that what we were thinking on one side? Against, yeah, against MSK. Um uh, uh, fuck who was done feuding, done and rich feuding with before the rich got called up. Wasn't it Champa and somebody else? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, like, or uh, was it Champa and uh, Mello? We were thinking maybe, but I don't recall. The point is, you had you, you had a legit, legitimate fuse to work with that right. could have been enhanced or brought to conclusion by a war games match. Right. And instead you promoted 
one of the two stables and then cut them within a month once you promoted uh -huh. them. And then on the other side, you uh, you promote Ridge Holland. Pete Dunn's left with his dick in the wind. And Imperium becomes the tag team champions and have nobody to work with legitimately unless you have an MSK rematch. Right. At instead, they're instead they're going to be they're going to end up working. Oh, O'Reilly and Wagner, and, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that match is happening tonight, but it's going to be O'Reilly and Wagner. <sighs> I'm. I don't know. I'm. It's, and NXT has fallen prey to the same thing that regular TV has fallen to is you've got a pay per view for lack of a better term coming up, and you're literally putting all the matches together six days before the fucking pay per view. Like, that's not how this works. That's not how it's ever worked. And that show is what? This coming Sunday or Saturday? Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. It's literally this match. It's the matches upcoming Sunday. The matches we know thus far, the two War Games matches. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a tag team title match. We're going to have a, oh, Jesus, fuck, cruiserweight title match. It's not a cruiserweight title match. And I think we're going to, I think they're doing Duke Hudson versus Cameron Grimes in a hair versus hair match. Which makes no sense because Duke Hudson has a buzz cut. Oh, if somebody fucking explain to me why you pre-booked the participants for one War Games Advantage ladder match. By the way, they're doing, they're doing two ladder matches the same fucking night. This Tuesday for the for the advantage instead of doing the coin flip, which was the staple of the fucking work, because that way we can get a match out of it. Right. Um. But you predetermined the participants for the women's one, but the men's one, you're just going to have people vote. Well, yeah. vote. I'll use air quotes. Uh huh. So confused right now. So goddamn confused right now. I got nothing. And also, just uh, I will say, I've been saying it, and I will fucking say it again. They need to expunge that fucking crowd and start from scratch. Here's the problem: they finally started offering tickets to the general public to go see NXT. The problem is the family and friends crowd that have been there for the past year are the ones that get first dibs on the seats. So they're getting the prevalent seating. And then people who want the other seats are coming in, like, and get it and getting spread. And so then you've still got the family and friends cheering for the fucking heels because they're family and friends, not because they're good workers. It's because it's their fucking hangout buddies. And that is seriously hindering the fucking product. Like, at least when they were at Full sale, yes, the crowd dictated some people who ended up not getting over with the main roster. But at least while they were down there, it was an organic reason they were getting cheered. They were just big fish in a small pond, and they could capture 500 people. They just couldn't capture 3,000 people. But It's kind of like when Defiant came out to some NEFW shows. They had people cheering for them occasionally. Exactly, but that's you're gonna so you're gonna have your cool heels get cheered. You're gonna have your cool heels get cheered. That happens. I know, but you can't very well have all these people who were there because originally you needed to fill seats and you could only do family and friends, and now the family and friends are dictating everything. That's not how this fucking works. They're not wrestling fans. They're fans of their family members who are wrestlers. There is a big difference. I know. I know. I know. 
I know we're running long, but we have to get into one more topic before we go off. Sure. So we're going to try to piece everything together and then go from there. <laughs> so Seth Rollins competed on Raw last week. Mm -hmm. He's working his way back up the ramp up the entranceway towards the, oh, yeah. the video board wall. <laughs> and as he basically reaches the end of the barricaded off fan sections and into the big the open like, floor. Yeah. Open floor empty area that's between the the guardrail sections of fans and the video board entrance. This dude from out of nowhere, comes flying and tackles Seth Rollins. And thankfully, there were referees and agents right behind the curtain yeah. that were on top of their shit. And they were out within seconds to gang tackle this guy off of Seth. Mm -hmm. And then Seth was whatever and went into the back. Got his lip busted open. And the backstory we've come to understand after this guy gave his recount of everything a day or two later is essentially dude was, and I don't remember all the ins and outs of it, but essentially he got catfished by somebody pretending to be Seth Rollins yep. on social media. Um, something involving asking for money and he was locked out of his Google account and needed money to unlock it because of hackers. Right. And he needed this dude's help because the dude was his number one fan. It was basically the social media equivalent of you of the shit you see every day in your email inbox that you know not to open and click the link for, but this guy apparently did. The only Nigerian prince I know is named Nana. Right. <laughs> Thank you, JJ. I needed that. That's good. <laughs> um, I think this is the second time we've mentioned him on this show, by the way. Um, oh, I'm pretty sure I did the first one. Um, I, first of all, let me put, it, put this out there. Um, based on, I think you mentioned this to me, but I'll put this, the disclaimer out there. Um this is not us trying to make light of this guy's mental health state because I think it's relatively apparent that there's something wrong with him upstairs between the ears. Yeah. Hence, hence the space between your ears banner behind me, my other podcast, which I've been delinquent on and I do need to get a new episode of. But we'll get to that for another day, another day. Um, so obviously, dude needs some help, needs therapy, whatever. So that's another subject for not our show to discuss. Hmm. But why is this becoming a thing again? I don't know. Man. We had do jump try to jump into the ring at AEW for the for MGF Jericho signing yeah. and claimed he was a disciple of Cornette trying to do it to please him and Vince Russo. I, fuck if I know. We've got this dude. Um, I think there was one other incident pretty early on post-COVID when WWE first came back. 
I don't know if I don't think I don't know if it was a I think it was a house show. Yeah. With that. But like I mean, I know we're just coming out of a pandemic, but are people this fucking stupid? I, I, it's like I said to you, and people are going to hate the fact that I'm going to say this, but marks still exist. We live in this age of information at the tips of your fingers, and and this is this goes full circle back to the economics of indie wrestling. Indie, a lot of indie wrestling promoters don't realize that there are still people who it's all still real to them, for lack of a better term. And whether they believe everything that, that whether they believe the fights are predetermined or not, whether they believe the stories are predetermined or not, whether they believe the people are actually good people or bad people, there's still still people that believe. And especially, and there's people that unfortunately and this goes a little towards the the mental health part of it, I guess, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people who have been so isolated that when they get catfished, they're like, oh, my God, someone famous is talking to me. Just like all those fucking threads going around social media where it's like tag your favorite comedian, tag your favorite band and see if they say hi back. Right. That shit. Mm-hmm. And then you, and then people are like, "Oh my God, I am friends with famous person." It's a very big thing on TikTok right now. Oh, is it? I don't know. I'm not on that shit. Yeah, I don't partake in it. I just... Ever since that bitch ripped off Candyman, uh, no, I ain't bothering. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure you have a number of stories relatable to to this. Um. It only happened to me once, so I'll tell my one story compared to probably the 50 you have. I don't think I ever told you this story. Um, and it's sad that it went to waste in the company that we mentioned earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. So, well, let me explain the elaborate, not-so-elaborate plan that went into this. So, A couple buddies of mine in the business got recruited into uh, being booked for the first few months of that company starting up. Real, we were they were real warriors, baby. <laughs> and um, and one of them, Chris, you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. He wanted to bring me into the fold, but he didn't want to bring me along the road. As the ring announcer, he pitched the idea to, it wasn't like, Caleb wasn't officially in all the way yet as the yeah. circle jerk right-hand man. It was the money guy. Yeah. I can't remember his fucking name. And quite frankly, it always I'm escapes me too. But it, quite frankly, was, I'm glad yeah. I don't remember his name. I want to say it was he like He was Mark the big troublemaker too. I want to say it was Mark or some shit like that. But anyways, which is Maybe appropriate Mark for Mark. Um, <laughs> but... Chris pitched the idea of me being his manager um, because he wanted that to spin off into the start of his company. He was going to be the state was going to be right. called the dynasty appropriate right. enough. So the elaborate idea they came up with was 
they brought in Caleb to ring announce the second half of the show. The elaborate plan was I was going to ring announce the first half of the show, and the match going inter- into intermission was going to be Chris versus Kenny Roberts. Oh God! So Kenny knows this. Kenny knows this. Um, or at least he was part of it, and um, also part of the match was an interruption by God rest his soul, Ian Griffin. Hmm. He was going to interfere in the match. Against Kenny. So whatever. They go through the queue. Whatever. And the concept was. Over the course of the first half of the show. I was going to legitimately show. Genuine disgust with. The way I sat and emoted. During matches. And would even show. A growing lack of interest. As I was ring announcing each match. And then at the end of the. The Chris and Kenny match. They let me take a hot mic and say whatever the fuck I wanted to cut a promo. And then they were going to go into intermission. That was the elaborate plan. So I think I still have a clip of this. Why the fuck are you laughing? Finish Why your the story f- and I'll tell you. Finish your okay. story and I'll tell you. So so I had like I had a few notes kind of scribbled down on my ring announcing card, but I, I was ready to let it fly because I just... I had those notes and I made a few observations from talents that were in the earlier matches and I was ready to fucking fire at will. So everything goes off without a hitch. Uh, I think Kenny ends up winning the match technically by DQ or whatever because um, of Griff. I do the shoot promo and fucking I'll show you the YouTube link of it because it's I was firing at will. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the shoot promo ended with me introducing myself as a manager. Chris is my first client. The guy was also the on-screen GM, by the way. This owner, mm-hmm. and he comes on. He's like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm like, fuck you. Stick this job up your ass. I quit." Essentially, shoved the mic in his chest, went out through, had me go through the curtain because that's smart. Yeah. But I went through the curtain back into the locker room. And then he sent everybody off into intermission. Then Caleb came out and re-announced the second half of the show. So, finally getting to the point of the story I want to get to. It's intermission, obviously. And Chris is like, want to get some more heat? I'm like, oh, Christ. So, he had a little handheld cam with him. For whatever fucking reason. I don't know why. Oh, because oh, he had somebody shooting the match of the audience. That's why. So he gets the handheld cam from, I think it was Tom who rolled with us, actually taped the match. Bless his soul, too. Um, so he gets the hand cam. And I don't know why I thought this was a good idea to go along with, because heels and intermission is usually not a good mix, but fuck it. So we go, we go around the ringside area. And we're just fuck with fans, basically. I shit you not. I had a kid maybe this high stand up from his front row seat at one point and take a swing at me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we're good. And I just went back. I'm like, we're good. We're good. We got what we wanted. Kid took a swing at me. My job's done. Needless to say, I'm sure you've had more intimidating individuals try to take a swing at you. More than once, I'm assuming. Um, 
and you're raising your eyebrows. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe because you have a story or two. Um, is there one in particular that pops out for you about fan interactions going wrong? Oh, yeah. Fan interactions. Uh, so this is actually part of and leading into. So, you know, they say imitation is the highest form of flattery. So the gimmick that they gave you, I can yes. tell you exactly where they got it from. Oh, God. When and where? 2009. 2009 Defiant Pro Wrestling. That was like four or five years before this happened. And Caleb was in the fucking audience for every show. Continue. 2009, what happened was I was a manager who... through a series of events, ended up becoming the GM of the company. What happened was then we lost our building. We didn't run for nine months. When we came back, we decided to kind of hit the reset button. So when we came back, I came out, cut the seal promo. Milano came out and basically said, uh, you're the reason we didn't run for nine months and we are unceremoniously getting rid of you. So then... We got our new school. We started running weekly again. And what happened was the angle was I wanted to come back, but there were no management spots. So I had to work my way up from the bottom. And I was a special guest referee for two shows. And then I had to become the ring announcer. And for the next five months, every week, I was the heel ring announcer who was disgusted with what he had to do who would praise the heels and talk shit about the baby faces. Five months? Five months. This you is how you milk build. the shit out of this. Until finally, boom, I'm done. I'm managing again. Hmm. Imitation's the sincerest form of flattery. You didn't know. <laughs> But yeah, so during that time, I was when I, I fucking worked fucking for fucking CTWE, which was one of the. We won't get into that, that, but go ahead. It was one of the bigger regrets. But while at a show there, while I was managing Bobby Ocean, um, there was some fan interaction, and a old lady with a walker tried handing her walker to Milano, going, "Hit that motherfucker with this." All right. Yep. Old lady with a walker. Good shit. Old lady with a walker. I've had an old lady with a walker, and I've had like a seven-year-old kicking me while I was down at an outdoor show because they had no ropes up. Heel heat, baby. Oh, man. There's an indie promotion that was around here one time. There's no story, but I just want to explain to you. So... Do you want to know how they fenced off the crowd from the ringside area of the ring? Yarn. <laughs> it essentially should have been. Somehow they got paint cans that were filled with concrete. Concrete with a stick in them. Yep. And they ran plastic chain link. One strand of it 
to connect all the, yep. the posts. See, we had the plastic chain, but we had the like the plastic gimmicks that you weight down with like sand. As the things we didn't have paint cans. <laughs> and the first company I officially worked for, um, similar concept, but it looked cleaner. They used white PVC pipe to oh. surround the ringside area. So it didn't look quite as trashy. Um, I mean, PVC pipe wasn't going to fucking stop anyone if they really wanted to do anything. Yeah. But at least it looked I mean, clean. Like I said, we had the plastic chain, but it was just it was that barrier that people knew not to cross. It wasn't meant right. to actually stop people. It was more of a you don't go past this. It's a velvet right. rope. Right. Oh man, we went down memory lane today a little bit. I like it. Um I got one more memory lane just because today was like thanks to Facebook memories. Today was the seven year anniversary of it. Oh Jesus, please do. Today was the seven year anniversary of the day RPW first started going downhill. On seven years ago, so this was 2014. Yeah. 2014 RPW, you said? Yeah. So this is... It was when this is things pre- started really going to... Sh- this, is, this, is when, this is when all of Eric's ideas started backfiring. Because Eric had the two philosophies. One was, if you find me a venue to run in, you get to book the show in that venue. Right, which we've discussed at length before. And the other one was, if I put it, if you have a title, one of my titles, you get to book your Oh, jeez. Fuck, I remember that, yeah. So this was a um, a fundraiser show that we ran at Whirly Ball, which... I vaguely remember that. I wasn't there, but I vaguely remember that booking being on Facebook. Yeah. Yes, Whirly Ball was it, that place. Like, if, if 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 anyone's ever interested in what Whirly Ball is, it's like this kind of like it's kind of like Quidditch and go karts kind of thing. Um, it's cool for people that want to do it. Like a lot of corporate about, uh, events do it and shit. But we basically there was a Whirly Ball place in Enfield, Connecticut at the time, and we got to run a couple of shows there. The problem was we ran in where the Whirly Ball court was, and as we came to find out years later, the way they do the the way the way the cards run, it's it's kind of like bumper cars. There's there's electric there's an electric grid that they run on. They never shut off the electric grid, so everyone was sick for days afterwards, and we didn't know why. But anyways, so this was the show. It was a, it was a fundraiser. Oh my god! Yeah. The opening match of the show was that there was going to be a Royal Rumble style battle royal on it, as, as, as uh, along with all the other matches on it. The opening match was for winner gets number one spot, loser gets or winner gets number twenty five spot, loser gets number one spot. That match was supposed to go ten to twelve minutes with entrances. That match went 25 minutes. Oh, Jesus, Mary Joseph. The participants in that match, Pinky Sanchez and Mark Quinn. Yeah. Who booked the venue? Jeremy Leary. Why the fuck did I know you were going to say that name? Why did I know? Oh, I just you know knew you were going to say that time? name. Jeremy you know Leary? At the time? God, I so that, fucking knew it. Oh, go so ahead. Was, Sorry. So that, was, so that was the night 
where the main event was supposed to be Leary against Just Incredible. Unfortunately, that week was when Credible first found out his wife had cancer. That that's okay. Yeah, so I think I, I remember out. this. Right. So he had to back out, and this and sadly it was like the second time he had to back out on a booking with RPW. Um, first time was because of something else, but this time it's his wife was legit sick, and he just wasn't in a good place. So it ended up being Leary versus Aaron Morrison, who Aaron Morrison was set to retire the next month. Correct. And so this was the show where Leary dropped the title to Morrison and then entered the battle royal under a hood, did the hide under the ring, looks like I'm eliminated, come out and eliminate the last guy, take off the hood, hi, I'm turning heel, calls out Morrison. Morrison gets attacked by Leary, Logan Black, and Rude Boy Riley, and Leary puts the belt back on himself. Okay. And things were never quite the same after that day. I wonder why. So, I was listening to your story, by the way. <laughs> Obviously, because I was reacting to it. But in the meantime, I was also pulling up the YouTube channel, because it still exists. Uh, this, this is how I know my promo still exists. For the Real Warriors. <laughs> I'm going to put a name out there to, jost to jostle your memory. Because he was the only heel that was getting any heat aside from us in the first, in the like four to six months it existed. Mm -hmm. Joseph Von Schmidt, ring a bell? <laughs> Too much of a fucking bell. I could go on for a fucking entire show and then some about how much of a piece of shit that motherfucker is. So you probably get the gimmick that you understand the gimmick that he was running. Yeah, I actually saw the photograph at the time from an indie show where it was him and three little kids who we had doing the fucking Hitler salute. Yep. I'll leave it at that. Here's why that um, Here's why they gimmick number work. Number one, he was Polish, not German. Number two, he was from fucking Connecticut, not Germany, and he had the worst German accent I've ever heard. So to so this actually goes full circle back to this. <laughs> Let me explain the talents. I can see just by checking out the listed names within this uh, YouTube channel. So this is when Vlad Joseph was getting... Okay. Um, Dreamer was on their first show. I remember that. Um, what else was on this show? The debut show didn't really, I gotta be honest, didn't have a whole lot going for it. The first show. Mm -hmm. Then their mid-July show we were at, they had Fury and Frost was their main, I think their main one. They had Black Cheese and I think this is Ricky 
Who is this? Ricky who? I can't remember his name. Oh, Ricky Reyes. Oh, yeah. Uh, then their late July show, that was, holy, that was the clusterfuck tag match I told you about before. Did I ever explain that to you? Yes. Where they wanted it to be a handicap match, and Just Cribble said, that's fucking stupid, and... So then they went with more stupid by having it be a tag match without credible in it. And one guy, and Cam Zagami, yeah. was he was the unfortunate guy that had to work four minutes and then get injured and get replaced by Just Incredible. The other guy in the team was Fox Vineyard, and my team was was Envy and Christian Frost. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um. So okay, here's blowing your load. Here's here's some of the people that were on that late July show. Let me just give you. I'm gonna give you this one tag match, and this one four way match, and you'll understand why the economics didn't work out. The four way match he had on this show, which was an elimination match, ACH versus Jigsaw versus Black G's versus AR Fox. Jesus, I don't want to know the budget for just that match. The other, they also had a tag match on that show. The Colony. Yeah. You want to guess who the opponents were? If it was the Colony, then it had to be a bunch of other Chicago guys. Nope. Nope. Although I don't know if they ever worked Chicago. I, I was, actually, I came and give you a different idea. I, I'm assuming they never did. I could be wrong. I'll give you a hint. You loathe and despise this tag team. That narrows it down. Like really loathe and despise this team. Oh, the Bucks. Yes. Yeah. To, to say goodbye to your budget. And this was 2014 Bucks, by the way. They were charging like they were charging like at least two grand in appearance then. Yep. And people were fucking paying it. Yep. I remember that shit. And then by the time he realized he was spending too much money, it was already too late. Yep. Um, but I know he, uh, one of the last shows had Todd Hansen on it. They had Rhett Titus versus Antonio Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, Rhett would actually always come in and work a spot for show, for places for not that much money. I know Rhett was always uh, kind of quite that. And Hansen, same thing. Well, yeah, I'm just saying like just in general. Yeah. Like, they, yeah, they, booked, they booked ben, Mike Bennett on a show. Um, they like, finally decided after three months, hey, maybe we should get some chicks to wrestle. <laughs> uh, and they put Veda Scott against Mistress Belmont one show. Oh, God. Um, Goldust against Greek God Papadon. That's that's the one I remember with Goldust. Dude, fuck it. Dude, okay. I'm gonna be comp- I'm gonna go complete shoot here. You just had okay. a name there that charges way too much for having never done anything in this business. He's part of Immortal, just so you know. Yeah, you know how much he charges per appearance? At least what he was two years ago? I can't imagine. 800. Eight. Eight. It's a hell of a number. For a guy that's never been on WWE TV or Impact or AEW or Ring of Honor? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. They they brought in Sanjay Dutt for a few shows, too. I always like Sanjay. They had Sanjay and Jay Lethal when he was doing the Black Machismo gimmick. Yeah. I'm sure that was cheap. Um, they actually never charged that much. 
Papa Don also did a match for them with uh, the artist formerly known as Oni Lorkin. Oh, Biff, yeah. I don't know. I just... I don't even know why I'm giving them so much time right now on this show. Because they I don't just, exist anymore. But it yeah. just, it just, it, you, it's good as a lesson of what happens when you decide to run an indie promotion and you don't know what you're doing and you're in over your head. And you think that booking a bunch of indie darlings is going to draw. And like, here was the major problem with them. They ran at Nomads, which Nomads is a beautiful venue. I will give them that. But nobody knew wrestling was ever happening there. No one ever knew. I went to Nomads the when Chikara came to Connecticut. They ran a show at Nomads. I only knew because somewhere on a message board, someone shared something. And I went and they drew 65 people because nobody knew that there was a wrestling show happening there. And Chikara, Chikara when they were big, big, they depended on their social media presence, which worked when they ran in Pennsylvania. But when the second they stepped out of Pennsylvania, they didn't have any grassroots at marketing. And so people didn't know. And like I said, Nomad and Nomads would actually, they would run pretty cheap because it's because you would run in the, the basketball court, which no right. one was really using because right. everyone was there for the, for the gaming. Cause right. you know, Nomads is basically a Chuck E. Cheese without the pizza. Right. Or Dave and Buster's without the booze. And I yeah, could yeah. notice that about Shakar, by the way, because the one show I helped them run in Troy, which is just outside of Albany, um, Troy most well known for uh, a Clash of Champions car that had Ric Flair and Terry Funk in a night quit match for the NWA heavyweight title. Yep. FYI. Look at him. Um, though, yeah, the one show they ever ran around here was in Troy. It was actually in the same building where um, the first company I ever worked with was running out of. It was a boys and girls club. Yep. And it just kind of felt that way. It just kind of felt like the, the fans that came in were just kind of hodgepodge and like it was almost like a it felt like a VIP show. Fan base that came in. Um but yeah. Any hooser. Um yeah. Anything else good, sir, before we wrap things up? I think we covered a lot of ground today. I've got a dog going nuts over the neighbors. Yeah. And we went we went stupid long compared to our usual show, so I do apologize. But hey, it was well worth it because I think we had some good discussion about some stuff that needed to be addressed, I yeah. felt like. Next week we can uh, talk shit about War Games. <laughs> well, that too. Um, War Games, by the way, this weekend, so obviously we'll recap that next week. Um, oh, some other stuff. I'm not even sure if there was anything we really didn't get to today. Um, most of the stuff, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, nice to see that uh, Steph's daughter is now training for wrestling. Good for her. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Anyways, uh, that was episode 27 of White Heat, presented by Godzilla Media, sponsored by our friends at Mohawk Kata and Johnstone Supply. For JJ Alexander, who was brooding in the dark of Connecticut. <laughs> I'm Brian Katie. Uh, happy wrestling. Toodles, everyone. Later. <laughs>